like you said, you know, there's lots of complications and nuances, you know, that, that go along with anything related to health. You know, anything that is, has to do with human physiology in the body is extremely complicated. And I think something that's very, very popular right now is this ketogenic diet and you know, high-fat diet, mm-hmm. which um, I just, I think has been taken and blown sort of out of proportion. And I don't think people really understand they, they just think it's sort of like this thing that's great. And there's actually a lot of things to consider. That's Dr. Rhonda Patrick, and this is The Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. It's your friendly neighborhood, Rich Roll, back at you with another edition of the RRP, the Rich Roll podcast, the show that bears my name. Thanks so much for tuning in today, everybody. I really appreciate it. Mad love for everybody who has shared the show with your friends and on social media. And of course, massive respect to everybody who has made a habit of clicking through the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. It seems like such a small little thing. Just click this little thing before you buy something on Amazon. It doesn't cost you anything extra. But it really does put a tremendous amount of wind in our sails. It allows me to continue doing what I do and is helping me to improve upon the show so I can bring you the absolute best programming possible. What do we do here? Well, as you know, you guys know, right? Each week I sit down with somebody who inspires me, somebody who I think that I can learn a tremendous amount from the best and the brightest across all categories of everything from health and diet, nutrition, fitness, athleticism, entrepreneurship, creativity, uh, spirituality, and consciousness. Um, And why do I do this? Well, I do this to help all of us optimize our lifestyle, to provide the tools and the resources that we all need and can use to help us Uh, self-actualize, to unlock and unleash our best, most authentic selves. And I've got a great show for you guys today. I'm super excited to introduce the great Dr. Rhonda Patrick. We have uh, an amazing amount of material that we cover in this podcast, so you're going to want to get out your pen and your paper, maybe put on your propeller hat. Uh, But before we get into the details of who she is and what we're going to talk about specifically, let's take care of a little business. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team 
from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. All right, today we're going to cover a lot of ground, geeking out on the hardcore science behind everything from longevity and anti-aging to the microbiome to inflammation and its relationship to chronic disease to gene expression and epigenetics to telomeres, what they are, why you need to know about them. And of course, nutrition, myths and truths, micronutrient inadequacies, supplementation, and the difference between eating for optimal wellness versus performance. And to explore all of this, I'm very, very excited to introduce my friend, Dr. Rhonda Patrick. Rhonda is a PhD in biomedical sciences. She is an expert in nutrition, metabolism, and aging, having done extensive research on all of these, including research on cancer and the effects of mineral and vitamin supplementation on metabolism. 
inflammation, and aging. She conducts clinical trials. She has performed aging research at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies, and she did her graduate research at St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, where she focused on cancer, mitochondrial metabolism, and apoptosis. Apoptosis? I think I said that right. In any event, she is super-duper smart, way smarter than me. And not only does she understand how to interpret research, she does it herself. And she's very, very effective at translating, at communicating uh, its import, the import of all of this research by distilling the complexities of scientific research down to what's important to know in understandable terms. In addition, she's very good at helping us how to understand how to apply all of this information into real-life practices. Rhonda's super awesome and amazing, so get out your pen and paper, maybe put on your propeller hat, because you're going to want to take notes for this one. So let's just jump in. Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Rhonda Patrick. Hey, Rhonda. Hey, Rich. How's it going? It's going pretty good. Thanks for uh, hosting me in your beachside home to do the podcast. I'm really excited to be here and talk to you today. My pleasure. No, I after the last conversation we had, I was super pumped to, to be able to chat with you again. Yeah, it's great. Um, for the listeners, you came up to my house. I did your podcast. Now I'm, I'm doing the opposite, coming down to you. So uh, it's great. Uh, and the first question I have for you before we even get into anything, because I can't get it out of my mind, I parked like a block away from here, like on the bay side. And I saw this big sign that said jetpack rentals. Is that true? Can you really rent a jetpack? You can. I have, I have yet to rent one. How could you live here and not immediately go rent a jetpack? I told you, I've, I've actually only lived here for like two and a half weeks out uh-huh. of the three months that I've been paying. So, um, yeah, I, you know, there's a lot of things that I want to try out, like pa- like the stand-up paddleboarding. Uh-huh. I've never done that. You know, I've grown up surfing. Right. Surfed You're for, from San Diego, right? I'm from San Diego. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I but used, you surf. I surf. I used to teach surfing when I was in college at UCSD. Oh, wow. I would um, teach at an all-girls school, surf school in La Jolla called Surf Diva. Uh-huh. And so I used to give surf lessons, uh, and then, you know, I'd do it like early in the morning before class or on weekends, and then go to school and learn a bunch of biochemistry and right. chemistry stuff. Right. Well, that's interesting. I can't imagine there's that many uh, PhDs in your discipline that uh, are avid surfers. Not many, and there weren't many surfers that were uh, PhDs, so... (laughs) Right. Well, you can navigate between both worlds. It's cool. Well, um, so many things that that, uh, we can talk about. My only fear with this podcast, really, is that we could just go down a dark alley and never return, so we're going to have to choose our our, uh, topics of conversation, I I think, here today, and we kind of talked a little bit before the podcast about a couple things that that would be good to focus on, but before we do that... um, why don't you kind of explain a little bit about your, I mean, your CV, we, we know your CV, but maybe kind of fill in the gaps on your, your background and your areas of expertise. So um, I, I, as I mentioned, I went to UCSD for my undergraduate uh, education. I was a chemist um, initially, so that means I was um, synthesizing a lot of organic molecules and peptides and, and you know, putting together things, which was fun for a while. Uh, got really bored with that, so I decided to um, try biology out, mm-hmm. and um, so I went to work at the Salk Institute for Biological Sciences in La Jolla, and that... That's like the place, right? Oh, it is such a place. It is overlooking Black's Beach, which is like one of the best surf spots ever, mm-hmm. 
And uh, it's also, you know, where the, the hang glider port is. You can do like parasailing, paragliding, and the golf course is right. Torrey Pines mm-hmm. Golf Course is right next door. Um, fantastic place. Just so many, you know, wonderful researchers that work there. And so I was, you know, very young, um, recent college graduate. And uh, so I had joined a lab there that was working on aging, of all things. Mm-hmm. And did you just fall into that or did, were you kind of directing yourself? In well, in a way I fell into it because while I was still a student at UCSD, I was doing some research internships that were paid um, at a very, very successful biotech company called Illumina, which now is like the top company that makes these gene chip arrays where people are doing all these microarray analysis. But so I worked there for two years, my junior and senior year in college, and I learned a lot of chemistry. Um, but at, I, you know, I just, like I said, I decided that I wanted to try biology out. And so someone that I had worked under at Illumina had a connection in a lab that was mm-hmm. hiring. And they're like, oh, well, you can, you know, this person, it's an aging lab. It's really cool. You know, we'll get you an interview. So I sort of just got my foot in the door by knowing someone mm-hmm. who had worked with me and gave me, you know, gave me a great recommendation. So sort of that's how I got in right and so you're working on aging I mean what does that mean specifically I know that's pretty big right aging (laughs) I mean first of all as as a young college you know college grad graduate student when I heard it was an aging research lab I was like really fascinated Uh I was like what is you know well yeah I'm interested in aging you know we're all aging you know every day I wake up I'm older Mm -hmm. um so this specific lab was using a research model, um, C. elegans, which is a little nematode roundworm that has a lifespan of about 14 to 15 days. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about these worms um, is that they have many of the same genes that humans have. In fact, like like over 90% of their genes in some way or another are in a, in, we, we have in humans, it's called mm-hmm. conserved. So we have a lot of these genes, genes that are conserved. So you can look at, you know, these genes in worms and manipulate them and sort of draw, you know, conclusions that may apply to humans since we have similar genes. Um, and the worms are such a great research model because they only live 15 days. And mm-hmm. so you can do a lot of ma- manipulations and see the effects, whereas humans have an average lifespan depending on your male. Right. So if they live one day longer, that's like an extreme result, right? Exactly. And what was really cool is that one of the big breakthroughs that was done by Cynthia Kenyon back when she was a postdoc, um, who now has her own laboratory at UCSF, uh, she found that by manipulating just one gene, she can increase their lifespan by 100%, meaning they live... 30 days, you mm-hmm. know, so go from 15 to 30 days. And that's just huge. And we, we humans happen to have this gene. In fact, um, humans that have a certain gene polymorphism, which means it's just a variation in the sequence of DNA that changes the function, that makes that gene more active all the time. Mm-hmm. Those humans have a up to threefold chance of becoming a centenarian or living wow. to be 100. Uh-huh. Super cool, right? Right, 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 right. Needless to say, I fell in love with biology. I'm like, this is great. This is cool. Uh, I was doing, at the time, I got, I got to, a, I was very fortunate to work with a postdoc on a project that was investigating uh, the effects of increased insulin signaling, too much insulin signaling on protein aggregation. And specifically, we were putting in a gene that is linked to the human form of Alzheimer's disease and looking Mm -hmm. at the effects of that. Mm -hmm. So I was able to co-author my first publication, which happened to be a really great um, publication. It was a science paper. And that was shortly after college. 
right after right? college. Wow, that's amazing yeah. to be published like that quickly. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a great experience for me. Um, and then I decided to, I became interested in pediatric cancer. So St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, which is in the Mid-South, um, it's in Memphis, Tennessee, mm-hmm. uh, quite, a, quite a culture difference from my beach life in San Diego, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, but phenomenal institute. Yeah, it's an um, incredible institute. Absolutely incredible. I mean, the work they've been doing is, you know, children there that get acute lymphoblastic leukemia, about 98% of the children treated there at St. Jude, and the treatment was, you know, mm-hmm. developed there at St. Jude. About 98% of those children go into remission, which means the wow. cancer goes away, and 90% of those children actually end up being cured, which the, being cured means you're in remission for at least 10 years. Mm-hmm. So it's just incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but aside from that, as a budding young scientist, um, what was so great about St. Jude was that because there is a they they do a phenomenal amount of fundraising and they get just you know a lot of donations um this there is no shortage of funding to buy great scientific technologies and all the cutting edge edge technologies are there so i was able to really learn um big big science Uh and be at the forefront of like where it's all heading exactly exactly and as a graduate student it's it's kind of rare to have those opportunities you know usually you're sort of you know, pinching pennies and trying to, you know, get, do what you can with the money you have, mm-hmm. or that was never an issue for me. And I just had access at, to, literally at my fingertips to just all the cutting edge technologies. And I was, you know, trained on how to use them. And so it was just a really good learning experience. And I had a lot of hands-on guidance from my uh, graduate student advisor. So from the, you know, while I was at St. Jude, I was looking at the effects of um, metabolism on cancer and, uh, you know, uh, mitochondrial metabolism specifically. Um, from there, I sort of became very interested in nutrition and preventative medicine. So I was mm-hmm. kind of like combining my aging background with everything I'd learned in, with metabolism um, and how that relates to cancer and aging and um, decided that I wanted to work with uh, Bruce Ames, who's a world-renowned scientist. Yeah, guy's like a legend. He is a yeah. legend. He is the greatest guy ever. He is like one of my favorite pe- people on the planet. Um, and he's, is he still alive? Yeah, he's, he's old though, right? He just turned 87. Did, Not oh, only wow. is he still uh-huh. alive, he still runs a lab. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he works five and a half days a week. Uh-huh. So he's, uh, and he was like, he's, so he's basically your mentor. Yes. He was my postdoctoral mentor. So after I, um, got my PhD in biomedical science, which took uh, quite a long time, six years, I then went on to do post graduate training with uh, Bruce. And so the postgraduate training is, is often referred to as a postdoc, uh-huh. postdoctoral training. And so um, he, which it was a very different experience compared to graduate school where I was getting a lot of mentorship, a lot of hands-on training. Um, eventually I became very independent. And then as I came to Bruce's lab, it was just everything. I was, you know, completely autonomous where it's just me coming up with ideas and Mm. bouncing them off Bruce and I'm just leading, charging the way like, um, and there I've been doing a variety of different research projects. So I've been, I've got clinical research that I've been doing. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to join Bruce's lab is because I went from chemistry, synthesizing, you know, peptides to worms to then mice at St. Jude, I was working on mice. And then I kind of wanted to work with humans. Mm -hmm. So I was able to um, be involved in clinical trials, ongoing clinical trials. That was, you know, Bruce Ames was 
leading um, in his lab. And right, because so, like the the actual like sort of affiliation with the hospital allows you to to sort of work on practical solutions to these sort of scientific theoretical, you know, sort of things that you're grappling with, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly, and that was what was so appealing to me. Um, I was, you know, to to be able to 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 you know do that was uh, it's something that I'd wanted to do for a long time, and so um, there I've been looking at the effects of certain micronutrient, which are micronutrients are about 30 to 40 essential vitamins, minerals, amino acids, um, essential fatty acids, uh, and deficiencies in those and um, how those can affect biomarkers of aging. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm looking in people that are unhealthy, metabolically unhealthy, that are insulin resistant, that are obese, people that are metabolically healthy and lean, young, old. So I've been looking at a variety of different um, parameters. And so that's ongoing research. And then I've also been involved in other trials there. So another trial that I, we just finished um, that I've been involved in is looking at aging related biomarkers in blood cells. So Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm getting blood cells from people and um, in, in this trial, it was actually, we were looking at the effects of freeze-dried blueberry powder mm-hmm. um, on biomarkers of aging. And so we were looking at, you know, does <laughs> eating blueberries. What, yeah, what did you discover? Well, I can't really um, say that, I can't really tell you yet because it was a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. Um, and what I'm looking at is a marker of aging called DNA damage which is, you know, damage to the DNA inside your blood cells and, Mm -hmm. you know, just normal metabolism. You know, every time we eat food, we metabolize, you know, to make energy. And that coupled in with the oxygen we breathe in can can lead to damage and that damage can damage your DNA. Well, Mm -hmm. as we get older, we have more damage to our DNA. Is this is this what's called oxidative stress? Or is that something different? Oxidative stress is another uh, way of uh, oxidative stress can happen before it damages the DNA. So oxidative stress happens and it can happen to your DNA or it can happen to proteins inside of your cells or it can happen to the cell membrane, lipids inside of your cells. So oxidative stress is sort of like more of a general term for for damage, yeah. Mm -hmm. And and DNA damage is one of those things that can occur. It seems that at the root, and this this is me being a complete lay person, (laughs) my perspective or... my perspective is that is that it seems that so many of these degenerative diseases or lifestyle diseases and perhaps even the acceleration of aging are related to inflammation. Is that true? And can we kind of camp out on this a little bit and explain exactly like what inflammation is? Because I feel like that term gets thrown around like very casually, but what does it actually mean? You nailed it, Rich. Yes, inflammation is uh, the driver of the aging process itself. In fact, um, very recently, in the past six months or so, a Japanese study um, published. Um, they published a study um, that involved elderly individuals that were like 80 years or older, mm-hmm. um, centenarians, which were 100 years old semi-super centenarians, which are 105, and then super centenarians, which are 110. And so they had all these different age populations and a variety of biomarkers were looked at 
tons of different biomarkers and they looked at telomere length, DNA damage, inflammatory markers, cellular senescence, um, which occurs when... What does that mean? Cellular senescence occurs when... So here's like the temporal chain of events. Oxidative stress, DNA damage. DNA damage causes the telomeres to shorten because your Mm -hmm. telomeres take the hit. Your telomeres are what protect your DNA. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the reason they do that is because if your DNA gets damaged, it can potentially lead to cancer. Right. So your telomeres take the hit. But before we go any further, and I don't want to take too much of a left turn, but I feel like we need to, like telomeres is a big thing that I wanted to talk to you about today. Okay. <laughs> I thought we were going to talk about inflammation, but maybe we can talk about telomeres, at least in the, in, to the extent that we can like define it. So um, we know what we're talking about. Yeah. So basically it's a biomarker for aging because um, as we age, they get shorter. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, but it's they're basically like the tail ends of your DNA strands. They're, right? they're, they're kind of like the, the caps on the end of your chromosomes, mm-hmm. which contain your DNA. So right. yes, exactly. So these Japanese people looked at it, all these different biomarkers and they looked you know, you know, they what they found was that in every category of age, so elderly, centenarians, semi super centenarians, mm. and super centenarians, the only thing that was positively associated with aging was the driver of aging was inflammation. That was mm-hmm. the only thing. So inflammatory markers. So mm-hmm. yes, you are right. Inflammation is uh, is at the root of aging. And to answer your question, what is inflammation? Which is. Um, you know, I completely agree with you. It's just kind of thrown around. And, you know, I don't think a lot of people really do understand exactly what inflammation is. So what inflammation is referring to is it's a consequence of your immune system being activated. And once your immune system is activated, they start firing off all these chemical weapons that are called inflammatory cytokines, cytokines. Mm-hmm. Um, and these inflammatory cytokines are um, damage, damage cells inside your body, damage DNA inside your body, damage pretty much all, everything inside of your cells. But what's confusing to me about this is that uh, essentially, inflammation is is an immune system response to something wrong in your body, right? It's your body's way of saying, let's send the ambulance out to fix whatever's wrong. Whether you cut your finger or you sprained your knee, uh, your immune system gets activated and mobilized to then kind of visit that either localized area or in general, if it's stress-related or something like that, I suppose. But the idea behind it is to fix the problem, right? So on some level, I, doesn't it make sense that like some inflammation is good because it's your body reacting to a problem in order to fix it? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, that one of the, you know, major effects, downstream effects of having, you know, these inflammatory cytokines and molecules being produced is they recruit other repair factors It you know, allows it increases genes in your body that then start to repair damage, mm-hmm. fix things. So it, it's, it's an essential part of repair and recovery system. Um, however, there is a difference between acute inflammation and chronic inflammation. Mm-hmm. Acute inflammation would be something like your four-hour marathon run, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or your two-hour training session when you're you know running and you know, you, you're, you're causing inflammation there. There's, you know, inflammation, you know, it occurs after intense exercise, but that's good because you, the inflammation 
signals to various you know genes in your body that turn on all these antioxidant genes they turn mm -hmm. on genes that repair muscle damage they turn on all these good so it's like a stress response sort of mechanism where mm -hmm. you're turning on all the good stuff but you need the bad stuff to turn them on so right. it's kind of like here here's a little right. bit little dose of this bad stuff to turn on the good stuff right so there's there's sort of the um you know exercise induced oxidative stress that triggers the immune system response versus somebody who's just smoking cigarettes all day long and that's causing some kind of internal damage in a number of ways that's creating just a chronic immune system response that is literally just burning your engine out right yeah exactly it you know the this the chronic smoking or in actually the major major source of all inflammation in the body is actually the gut so you're talking about people that are eating unhealthy they're not getting enough fiber and we can talk more about that mm -hmm. in a little bit um you know they're they're doing damage in the gut and that's causing a lot of immune cells to become active chronically every day you know mm -hmm. the food you're eating people eat you know three times a day or even more so in your experience what what are the foods that create the worst sort of inflammatory response well i think it's actually more a lack of foods lack of the good foods than eating bad foods um because so your gut is hosts the largest number of uh, immune cells in the body so that you all you most of the immune cells in your body are found in your gut mm. you've got them in your spleen your thymus and you're obviously in your blood you know stream but uh the largest number of them are actually in your gut the reason for that is because you know your gut is exposed to the external environment you know the food you eat your gut mm. sees it and that can be pretty lethal if you mm -hmm. get some bad, nasty stuff. So right, right. your immune system has to be there and ready to react to that, right? To, to make sure uh -huh. that you stay alive along, you know, long enough to reproduce and pass on your genes. Um, so in, in addition to immune cells being in your gut, you also have a lot of bacteria in your gut. Tons and tons of bacteria. And, I've, and there's people that sort of debate how many bacteria, you know, there's a hundred trillion I've seen references for, right. and I haven't dug into like, is it accurate or not? I mean, it's a lot, it's a lot of freaking yeah. bacteria. Okay. 10 times more micro, uh, microorganism than human. Right. It's thrown around. And, and people, you know, this, that just can't, it irks them to hear people say that. And, you know, I don't know, I've seen references that show that there are a hundred trillion bacteria cells in your, in your colon, in the, you know, mm -hmm. distal part of your gut. Um, and those bacteria play a very, very important role in, in regulating your immune system. So you have to feed those bacteria the right types of foods in order for them. You can kind of think of them as little chemical producing factories, actually, because when you feed them the right type of food, which happens to be fiber, uh -huh. <laughs> um, fiber gets digested by this bacteria in your gut, in your colon specifically, and they, it produces a bunch of different chemical products called short-chain fatty acids, which are little signaling molecules that tell your immune cells in your gut to become a certain type of immune cell. So they'll tell them, okay, become this type of immune cell that is involved in um, preventing autoimmune diseases, making sure imu your immune system doesn't get so ramped up that it starts to just attack everything, including your own organs. Mm -hmm. That's very important. Mm -hmm. um, and the type of immune cell that does that is called T regulatory cells. And T regulatory cells become T regulatory cells based on these bacteria in your gut that are producing these little products that right. tell it to do it. Um, so 
you know, it's very important that your gut gets fiber. And I actually, um, some, a couple of my acquaintances at Stanford University, Justin, Erica Sonnenberg, I recently interviewed them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're on my list of people to go interview. Highly recommend. They're extremely. Um, they run their own lab there, right? They do. They Justin, Justin, and Erica run their own lab at Stanford, and they've been researching the gut microbiome, you know, for for several years now. And they've, you know, very they're leaders in the field. They wrote a book called The Good Gut, and um, when I was speaking with them a few months ago, they had told me that the if you if you look at like hunter gatherer societies like in Tanzania they get around 200 grams of fiber a day mm-hmm. and compared to the typical american diet which is like maybe 15 grams of fiber I mean, that's a that's a huge yeah, it's difference. crazy and it, it, it's funny because in our culture we're all obsessed with protein you know we're all think walking around thinking that we we might be suffering from a protein deficiency <laughs> the truth is almost everyone is suffering from a fiber deficiency and if we if we flip those words around, I think we'd all be better off. If people were like, did you get your fiber today? Did you get your fiber today? I mean, we would be in a different place. I am so I am so with you on that is my new motto. Did you get your fiber today? Mm-hmm. Because it is so incredibly important. And what, a good way to think about it for, for some people that don't really have a you know grasp on why fiber is so important. When you eat protein, when you eat you know, fat, when you're, when you're eating these other um, sources of energy, even carbohydrates that are not fi- that you know, like refined carbohydrates mm-hmm. that don't have fiber, those things all get metabolized in the upper part of your intestine. They don't make it to the colon where all your bacteria are: mm-hmm. probiotic bacteria, good bacteria, the commensal bacteria that are regulating the immune system, like I just mentioned. So what happens is, because you're getting protein and fat and refined carbs, um, those bacteria start to get hungry. Oh, what am I going to eat? I don't mm-hmm. get the protein. I don't get the fat. So they actually start to eat what's called mucin, which is what it's essentially the gut barrier. The gut barrier is made up of something called mucin mm-hmm. and it's mucin because it's kind of mucusy, kind of slippery. And it separates the immune cells from the bacteria in your gut, separates the food, you know, from, from, you know, the internal mm-hmm. part of your gut. So the gut barrier starts to get broken down by your own probiotic bacteria that are good for you because they're hungry because you've been starving them of fiber. Right, right. they're so far down the conveyor belt that they they have they're forced to basically cannibalize themselves. Exactly. And, and is that what causes leaky gut and yes. perf- all these sorts of issues where people are having all these, you know, digestive disorders? Yes. Mm-hmm. It causes a plethora of disorders, you know, leaky gut, it affects your immune system because now your, your immune system's all out of whack. Your gut barrier starts to break down. The immune cells start to see the bacteria. What do immune cells do when they see bacteria? They fire away. They're, mm-hmm. they're going to fire all that chemical warfare I was talking about. It creates more inflammation. You start to release you know, these things into your bloodstream, causes activation of you know, immune cells in your bloodstream that can affect your cholesterol and all sorts of damage. It's just bad. And these disorders are, have really become like an epidemic you know i feel like i meet people all the time who deal with problems in this in this area and it didn't seem like it used to be that way right so obviously there's something going on and it has to do with the it must have to do with the food that we're eating yeah you know i haven't done and the antibiotics of course of course i mean antibiotics are also a really big one and they say wipe out you know all the bacteria in your gut but 
you know, the, the, the lack of fiber, it's, it's kind of like, I think it's like this insidious kind of damage that people just, they don't realize that it's like, oh, they may notice they may be constipated a little or, you know, it's just, but they don't realize to what magnitude this sort of effect can have when it starts to compound over the years because it's really mm-hmm. changing your immune system. It's, it's causing inflammation. It's aging you. It's going to accelerate the way you age on every level. Um, and, you know, it can lead to these diseases, these autoimmune-related diseases, these diseases of aging. You know, all sorts of problems start to happen. And I really think that you, 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 you nailed it when there's a simple solution. That simple solution is you need to focus on getting fiber. Mm-hmm. I mean, I actually... That is my main obsession. I it, it's fiber, and then I supplement some protein and fat and all all that with right. Fiber fiber is at the top of the food pyramid. For it you. is the top. That's so and, interesting. And it's all different types of fiber because you've you've got you know seeds, legumes, you've oats, vegetables, fruits. You mm-hmm. know they all have different types of fiber. And what we're learning. By we, I mean this. I, I I say I'm learning this. I am a scientist, but I'm actually not doing microbiome research, you know, experimentally. Um, but I read about we it. And as, I know people. As the royal we as being part of the scientific community. <laughs> exactly. Okay, Ron, exactly. I, yeah. What we are learning is that um, there are different types of fiber that are having different effects. Mm. You know, so they're feeding different types of bacteria, and they're producing those bacteria are producing different types of chemical byproducts, which then do X, Y, or Z, you know? So I mentioned the T regulatory cells, which are important for preventing autoimmune disease. They also um, make something called natural T, natural T killer cells, which are the most important type of immune cell that kills cancer cells in your mm-hmm. body. And we're constantly getting little cancer cells that mm-hmm. arise and right. our immune system takes care of it. Right. It's when our, it's sort of like a levels number, you know, when, when we get more cancer cells than our immune system can handle, a, because our immune system's weak, because we're not making enough natural T killer cells or something like that, um, then, then it starts to get to the point where the cancer cells start to survive. They, right. they make it. You know, so. Interesting. Yeah, I, I interviewed um, this doctor, uh, Dr. Robin Shutkan, who's an expert in the microbiome. She wrote a book called The Microbiome Solution, and, and she was just full of fascinating information on this subject matter. But one thing, one practical thing that she said that I think is really interesting and important, and I'm interested in your your feedback on this, was that she was we were talking about you know how to kind of maintain a healthy gut, and we were talking about probiotics. And her perspective was, you know, probiotics are great, but most of them aren't as effective as you think, and you actually need so much. Even though it says billions and billions of cultures or whatever, you actually need so much more of that. And instead of focusing on um, taking in probiotics, you should be focusing on prebiotics, which are essentially the types of foods that the healthy gut flora feed on, which is essentially fiber, right? So fiber being like the ultimate prebiotic, which then seeds your gut with the type of kind of gut flora that is desirable for optimizing your health. I agree with the, the fact that uh, fiber is first and foremost the most important thing for growing healthy flora, you know, growing healthy gut bacteria. Um, you, you know, you'd be amazed with, with even if you have just a few hundred of a certain type of probiotic in your gut, which you would never be able to, to see on a, for example, a fecal, um, 
sample mm -hmm. tests where they measure different types of bacteria, you know, based on your feces. But if you continue to feed those bacteria the, the right types of fiber, you know, over the, the next year or so, you'll start to see those bacteria cropping up because they'll flourish, they'll grow mm -hmm. and flourish. Right. Now, with that said, I will say that you obviously need to have a population, even if it's a very small, small population of bacteria, you need it to be present. So you have to create the colony. You first. have to like create the colony. Oh. And, and as you mentioned, you know, antibiotics are so widespread. I mean, we're actually on the verge of like serious antibiotic resistance, like cropping up. And that is scary. It's actually terrifying. I don't want to get into that post-apocalypse apocalyptic world we can I, go there if you want but that might be a different podcast <laughs> it totally would be a different uh -huh. podcast um uh, so there you know the, a lot of the probiotics out there are most mo the, the biggest problem is that they're not a large enough quantity mm -hmm. um and sometimes they don't they perish by the time you drink them like yeah. there's there's a big issue with that with kombucha right like i never know like are these probiotic cultures actually, is there, is this, is this true? Like, I don't know. You is know it what I mean? live? Yeah. Is it, is it marketing or is it real? Yes. So I have, um, done a lot of reading and I were, when I was at children's hospital in Oakland, one of my colleagues is a gut expert and he's just a brilliant guy and does a lot of research on the gut, gut bacteria, gut health. And so I was talking with him one day and he turned me on to a certain type of probiotic called BSL number three. I've probably mentioned it to you before because mm -hmm. I talk about it a lot. And the reason I talk about it a lot is because um, I re I've read over 25 published studies that have used BSL number three, both clinically. Is it BSL number three? Oh, as in Victor, SL number three. Is that like the clinical word for it? I'll is show you some. You can I have actually some. buy that? So, no, you can buy it. So, it comes, um, you can buy it in a sachet form, which is like a little packet, and it has uh -huh. 450 billion. Sachet, like in a man pouch that you carry? <laughs> well, it actually, it sh it's, it's, it's shipped to you on ice because uh -huh. they have to stay cold. Oh, wow. So they, they ship it to right. you in, on this, you know, with all these ice packs, and it's like two-day shipping. Um, it has 450 billion probiotics in each packet, which is over 90 times what anything else out there has. Uh -huh. So... And even that is a drop in the pool when it gets to your colon. So mm -hmm. even that, but it's still, it has been shown to, you know, there's so many studies that have shown you just recently, a new study came out where people were fed a really high sugar and high fat diet and they were given either BSL number three or placebo and the BSL number three prevented weight gain mm -hmm. again, because it had to do with the inflammation, mm -hmm. um, making sure you're getting the right types of bacteria. But, um, I've used it and I've done some self experimentation where I measured, the different types of bacteria using a company called Ubiome where you can look right. and, and right, right, measure right. Um, different types of bacteria in your uh, colon. And then I took the BSL number three for 30 days and it was pretty uh, interesting how I was able to increase. In fact, new strains were cropping up that aren't even in. So this type of a, a probiotic only has about six strains in it. But I was getting, I was having strains crop up that were like not there before, mm. before I did the test and that are not in the probiotic itself. So again, right. you're just, that's super, interesting. yeah, it's super interesting. So did it change how you, were there any outward manifestations of it? Did it change your like emotions or how you felt or how you look, you know what I mean? Cause it's, it's so influential on so many things. Yeah. I didn't notice any change. There've been studies with VSL number three where it did affect people's mood right. um, I personally like yeah I personally because I I pretty healthy and I'm very fiber uh -huh. obsessed I mean I eat 
tons and tons of vegetables and I eat, I'm not like scared of oats. So I eat oats and um, muesli it's called, which has yeah. like seeds and raisins. I love that stuff. And um, beans. So I eat a lot of fiber, but I did, I, I, there was a point that I was having an inflammatory gut issue, uh, kind of like an inflammatory bowel problem. And um, I had taken care, I just through diet, I mostly had it managed you know, it was managed, manageable. But uh, after the BSL number three, it was completely gone, mm. 100% gone. And I've gotten tons of emails from people that have heard me talk about it and had colitis and it just said that it changed their life. So. That's amazing. So is it like an eyedropper? You put it in like a, a, a liquid solution or how does it work? No, it's, um, it's a little packet. And if only I could like take powder? this mic with me to the fridge, <laughs> I could show it to you. <laughs> we'll do it so, after the podcast. Yeah, it comes in a little packet and it's a little powder. And I, I put it in my yogurt, put uh-huh. it in water. My husband, Dan, will like take a shot. He'll like put it on his tongue and just like take a shot right. of it just to like do it quickly. And how do they create it? Like what is it made from? Um, like it is it in a Petri dish no, culture? Actually how it's made. Yeah. I don't know how they make it. Um, mm-hmm. It's 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 called a medical food and on the box it says take it under medical supervision you know which so you know if you're out there and you have you know some sort of clinical condition talk to your doctor but you can order it amazon has it or you can order it from the company um directly which is what i do sigma how i think they're called it's a company yeah well i'll find out i'll make sure there's a link in the show yeah it's um you know and and to get it, you can don't you can buy the pills, but the pills you have to take eight of them to get the equivalent of one pouch. Hmm. So, you know, it's kind of gotcha. All right, good. So let's get back to inflammation in general. So, we kind of have a working understanding of inflammation now, and and what, in your opinion, are the leading kind of causes of inflammation, and what are the ways that we can you know avoid these? Like, what are some daily habits that we can kind of undercut this? chronic immune response that is making us sick so as i mentioned i i think one of the major drivers of inflammation is gut health and lack of fiber that's that's really one of the major things Mm -hmm. so making sure you're eating enough vegetables you know getting getting enough you know nuts seeds plants legumes like i think that's i think that's very very important for for controlling inflammation and that's been i mean it's been shown that the gut is the major regulatory uh regulator of inflammation. So that's number one, that's easy, you know, increase your intake of vegetables. Um, the other easy actionable, um, for controlling inflammation is believe it or not actually causing acute inflammation through exercise Mm -hmm. because it is a hormetic, it's called a hormetic type of stress where you're inducing stress you're then activating all these anti-inflammatory genes. And this has been shown like about an hour after exercise, um, you, you have a really high uh, elevation of these pro-inflammatory mediators. And then immediately after that, like a couple hours later, is a very strong anti-inflammatory mm-hmm. response. Mm-hmm. So exercise is a really good way to boost the anti-inflammatory processes, the natural ones in your body. Right. So it's like push-ups for your immune system as well as for your muscles. Exactly. It really is. It really is. Um, and the other one that I've really been obsessed with recently is um, curcumin. Hmm. And curcumin is one of the curcuminoids that is found in turmeric. Right. It's a root. It's a root. And What it's, is the difference between that and turmeric? 
Well, turmeric has many different curcuminoids in them, including curcumin. Mm. I like to get... Now, I mentioned the curcumin specifically because the curcumin is a very, very potent anti-inflammatory. But it doesn't work the way people may be thinking NSAIDs or, you know, anti-inflammatory drugs. It works very differently um, because it's actually kind of like exercise. It's a hormetic stress. It's, it's actually slightly toxic to us. And because it's slightly toxic to us, it turns on all these really potent anti-inflammatory genes mm-hmm. and it inhibits the, the pro-inflammatory ones um, as well. So curcumin uh, is really, really good at doing that. And how do you take that? So I just, um, so that's a really good question. But before I get to that, I wanted to say, differentiate the difference between curcumin and turmeric. Mm-hmm. Turmeric is also very good because it's the source of curcumin. Curcumin's not as concentrated if you're taking the, the full turmeric, um, which you can buy, you know, you can buy the root and have it fresh, or you can buy powder and cook with it. You know, curries and stuff are often have turmeric in it. Um, or you can make tea, you can do lots of things with it. But what's really cool about turmeric is that in addition to curcumin, it has something in it called aromatic tumerone, which is another curcum- mm. curcuminoid that has a completely different function than curcumin. The aromatic tumerone has been shown in studies to actually in the brain increase neural stem cells. So stem cells in the brain to make more neurons. So it actually increases neural stem cells to what's called differentiate, which just means these stem cells become neurons. Mm -hmm. So it increased dramatically increase the number of neurons in, in little mice brains. Is that Um, with like massive quantities or over how long of a period of time or? Yeah, really good questions. Um, So it, with the aromatic tumerone study, I it was I think it was like 100 milligrams per kilogram of body weight, which would be a lot of it would be like eight grams a day for a 180 pound male. Right, it's a lot. Yeah, that would be a lot. And we don't really know what if there are any long term effects of taking such a high dose of turmeric. Mm-hmm. So um, these curcuminoids are actually fat soluble, and uh, other studies have shown that if you if they are um, in like a liposome or like if they're with a lipid sort of uh, phospholipid type of thing like phosphatidylcholine, it can increase the bioavailability dramatically. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and there have been studies, you know, recently showing that, um, in fact, you can, people that are given this, this formulation of the curcumin, for example, with the phosphatidylcholine, uh, people taking two grams of that a day, which is about 400 milligrams of it would actually be the curcumin uh, and then the other, so it's like 20% curcumin and 40% of the, the lip phosphatidylcholine right. complex. Um, they experience pain relief um, equivalent to taking an entire gram of acetaminophen or 800 mm-hmm. milligrams of ibuprofen. So this is like the, the champion of all antioxidants. It's, it really is because it works very differently than, than supplemental antioxidants do because if you take a supplemental antioxidant like vitamin E, for example, the way it is an antioxidant is it binds and it sequesters this oxidative stress that you were talking about. It, it binds these little, you can think of them as like little radicals, little free radicals, like mm-hmm. bumping around, doing damage. Well, it binds and sequesters them so it can't do them. Now, that can have good, that, that has good effects, but it can also have bad effects. The, you know, the, the bad effects can be 
if you take your vitamin E and you're exercising, well, that the, those little free radicals that are produced acutely, like we mentioned, mm-hmm. um, actually serve as signaling molecules to make to activate all the anti-inflammatory and antioxidant right, right, genes. Right, right. Interesting. So you don't do you don't get that, and and that's not really a good thing. Yeah, that brings up kind of an interesting. Uh, subject that that um, I've read a little bit about and I've heard and I'm, I don't know that much about, but this idea of, you know, look, as an athlete, it's all about like, how do you recover more quickly? Like the more quickly you can recover in between workouts, the harder you can train. So you want to take in all kinds of antioxidants and, you know, make sure that you're repairing your body as quickly as possible. But there's this sort of counter argument or, you know, counterintuitive theory that if you dispense with all that and actually forget about the antioxidants and allow your body to kind of, you know, suffer through that recovery process that that actually strengthens the body's ability to recover because you're not, you're not like giving it this crutch to do that. It actually has to perform it itself. Is that? Yeah, that's partly truth. truth in that? Yeah, there is truth in that. There's truth in that. It, it's a little more complicated. Um, but it, 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 so it has been shown that if you are, you know, exercising, it really depends on the dose of exercise um, in some regards. But if you exercise and you're taking a supplemental antioxidant, it can actually negate some of the, the benefits. Um, for example, if you're, if you're doing like resistance training, and, and this has been shown, if you take supplemental vitamin E, then it can actually negate some of the hypertrophy hypertrophy that, is, um, that you get from you know, resistance training mm-hmm. because the the oxidative stress that you're generating while you're you know lifting weights or doing leg presses <clears throat> excuse me that usually sir it actually that those, those that oxidative stress will cause your mitochondria which are the you know, little energy producing organelles inside of your cells um, to make more of them so and that's very a very important thing right. to gain more muscle mass and if you get rid of those that oxidative stress that you generate when you're exercising that doesn't happen so you're you're negating some of that. It's like a signal. Right, it's like, like a, you did this training for nothing. Yeah, essentially, and that's also been shown with um, insulin. The benefits of exercise on insulin sensitivity. That it, that if supplemental antioxidants are taking, and I focus more on vitamin E than vitamin C because vitamin C is a unique antioxidant in that it also becomes a prooxidant when you're taking it and it goes mm. between these two states of antioxidant prooxidant depending on the dose. So I don't even want to go there. Yeah, it's going to get too confusing. <laughs> yeah. I'm but. trying to keep this as relatable as possible. Exactly. Cause I know you could like, we can propeller head it all the way, you know, into we, the stratosphere. We could, we could try to keep it grounded. And, and so the reason I said it's kind of complicated is because then you have these professional types of athletes or, or, you know, these like yourself where you're, endurance athletes that you're running marathons and you're doing triathlons and all these just competitive type of athletes that really push their workout to the next level. It's not your average go to the gym, do leg presses, Mm -hmm. do some squats and, you know, Olympic lifts kind of workout. And I'm not saying that's not a good, great workout. I'm just saying it's not the same as being a competitive athlete where you're training Mm -hmm. to compete or you're a professional athlete, which are also, you know, competitive athletes. Um, Competitive athletes, because the dose of exercise is so incredibly robust and potent, they are very subject to a very hyperactive immune response where their immune system there is so activated, it sort of 
can spiral out of control and start to break down muscle and cause uh, you know muscle damage because their workout or their training was so intense. Is that is that like indicia of overtraining, or are you talking about like just a particular workout of just pushing so hard, or just the, well, just the day in day out grind? Yeah, you know, I don't know if it's. It, I guess it all depends on what you define as overtraining. Yeah, right? yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think you know because I'm th- thinking like if you're a Tour de France cyclist. You can go out and and ride your bike fairly hard for five or six hours with nothing but a bottle of water and feel like you went for a walk. You know what I mean? Because you're so adapted. Mm -hmm. You you become so efficient at that exercise. Um, Whereas, you know, for the average layperson, that would be, you know, a very, very difficult thing to do. Right. So there's a there's an adaptation that takes place there. Um, So how does that relate to kind of stress adaptation and the kind of immune system response and, you know, the free radical damage and all of that. I mean, because if someone can go out and do that and it doesn't feel like they did anything, then I would presume that there really isn't that kind of free radical damage because they've adjusted to it. Yeah, and that has, that's absolutely true. Um, athletes that are, you know, adapted, many of the, the you know, adaptive responses um, that occur are, are happening because their body for example, is they're elevating their core body temperature, they're increasing the production of something called heat shock proteins, which activate all these genes that help you deal with stress. And so you're right, um, the the damage does get negated to a certain extent when they're they're mm-hmm. adapted because their their body's already doing all this counter stuff. Right. Um, so yeah, I guess it may, probably does have to do more with the overtraining than the people right. that aren't adapted, and that's right. pro- that's probably a really good distinction to all make. Right. So back to inflammation. So here we have increase your fiber. We have uh, exercise. We have curcumin. Yes. What else should we be doing? Fish oil. Fish oil. Or eat your fish. I'm a vegan. I know. You are a vegan. Um, Yeah. Lots of vegan listeners too. So is that because of the the DHA or the DHEA or the omega-3s? Like what is it? The Mm -hmm. EPA. Well, the anti-inflammatory. Environmental Protection Agency. (laughs) Icosapentaenoic acid. Uh huh. Um, How else can I get that? So the there the two marine omega three fatty acids are eicosapentaenoic acid, also known as EPA, or docosahexaenoic acid, also known as DHA, um, which are found really in fatty fish, um, microalgae, you know, phytoplankton. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if, uh, if vegetarians do the phytoplankton. Yeah, I mean, basically for these kinds of things, there's always some kind of algal, uh, yes. you know, varietal of that because essentially the fish just store this in their fat tissue, right? So they're like sieves for all of this stuff. So it's really just a matter of kind of going to the source of it. Yes, exactly. So microalgae oil would be the source for the of the EPA and DHA. Mm-hmm. And then the third omega-3 is alpha-linolenic acid, ALA, which is found in nuts, um, plant uh, flax seeds. So that's that's more of the plant. But that type of omega-3 is um does not is not as anti-inflammatory as the epa uh, and and the dha as well to some extent but the epa is really really robust at anti-inflammatory mm-hmm. it's um it's very important for uh reducing something called e2 series prostaglandins which are like all these signaling molecules that cause inflammation they cross over to the blood-brain barrier get into the brain wreak havoc they also can deplete serotonin and lead to depression this has all been shown mm-hmm. in fact it's been shown if you inject people with an inflammatory cytokine um it can cause depressive symptoms but if you inject them with the inflammatory cytokine and they take fish oil 
it negates the uh, depressive symptoms. So, um, I, you know, microalgae is a good source. Fish oil, um, eating fish for the non-vegans and How vegetarians, <laughs> like myself, I, I eat a lot of fish. Um, it's very important. Fish, fish is very important, or microalgae is very important. Right, right, getting right. Getting microalgae. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So, um, and then beyond that, let's talk about sleep and other stress reduction um, techniques like meditation and the impact of that on reducing chronic inflammation. Yes, I was just going there. Oh, you, you read were? my okay, mind. Sorry yes. About that. Well, it, what's I've become sort of obsessed recently with uh, circadian rhythm or your biological clock which is related to sleep. You know, we're on humans are on a, you know, a 24-hour light or day night dark cycle mm-hmm. where we're in the day when it's light out we're active you know we're working we're exercising we're thinking we're you know metabolically active and at night when it's dark typically we're you know resting sleeping it's when we're repairing a lot of damage things like that um but what is so interesting is that bright light exposure early bright light exposure is so incredibly important for setting your biological clock it's like an anchor to set it so that it, it knows, okay, this is day, this is when day starts. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this whole, this internal clock that you have regulates 20, like 20%, no, 15, 20% of your entire genome. Many of those genes are involved in metabolism, inflammation. Whoa, that's a trip. Tons. And I mean, it's completely regulated on just when, you know, the amount of light you're exposed to, when you're exposed to it and when it's dark, it's mm-hmm. like this clock. And so, um, Recently, I came across a study that showed when humans were exposed to really, really bright light, uh, it was 10,000 lux, which is like the sun. Um, when they're exposed to it, starting early for about seven hours, you know, that was able to reduce cortisol levels, which is a stress hormone cortisol, by t- up to 25% during the next day, during its peak phase. Wow. 25%. So cortisol... So translation, just, you need to be outside and exposed to the sun? As, you need to, you need to be exposed to, to light. sitting in your cubicle? Yes, that's yeah. the translation. And, you know, just cortisol is... I mean, it causes massive inflammation. It's one of those stress hormones that activates almost every gene in the body that increases your, your immune cells to go fire, fire, fire. Mm-hmm. Cortisol does that. I mean, there's a reason it does that. It's a stress response. But... If you are not being exposed to bright light because you live, you know, you live, you, you live somewhere and it's dark all, you're, you know, dark in your house or your apartment or you work a job where, you know, you're just not able to be exposed to the light, it really can have detrimental effects on health. Um, and you know, we're talking about inflammation here. That, that's mm-hmm. at the at the molecular level. That's what's going on. But it, you know, it has a lot of effects on your ability to lose weight, to gain muscle mass your mood, brain function, memory, learning, you know, all these things. I mean, tons and tons of studies have shown, you know, cortisol, you know, decreases muscle mass. It actually causes your muscle, muscles to atrophy, causes your brain to atrophy. I mean, this has all been shown experimentally. Wow, that's amazing. So for the average person, though, they're not, most people are not able to be out in direct sunlight for seven hours a day, right? So is there like a, a manageable solution for the average person? Well, I do know that in terms of just setting the biological clock, 
that's so being exposed to seven hours a day that specifically was referring to the 25 percent reduction in cortisol i got you um but but just being exposed to bright light for like one to two hours uh is is enough to set your biological clock correctly Mm -hmm. so that you know, your, your metabolizing, your metabolism's going the way it's supposed to, your inflammation's going the way it's designed, you know, you're, you're able to break down fat, you're able to uh, build muscle mass, you're able to, you know, repair damage, all these things are being regulated by that biological clock. So that one to two hours is, is uh, key for that, which is like sort of like the minimal effect. Right, dose. right. It's such a crazy thing that the circadian rhythm is like even exists. I mean, we walk around thinking that we've mastered nature, you know, and we forget that we're just primal creatures, know. you know, living in this, you know, basically in the wild and that we're still, you know, we still have to, you know, uh, fall prey to these things beyond our control. And it's so well conserved, right? It's like they find they find that little freaking diatoms in the ocean have a circadian rhythm. Right. I mean, what? <laughs> it's so insane. Uh-huh. Uh, and one thing I've noticed since I've moved, I previously lived in a place that was blocked by like buildings on like every window had a building blocking the light. Mm-hmm. So like if I was inside... I really just literally, it was like being in a coffin and my circadian rhythm was completely out of whack. I mean, I, I've always sort of been I gravitate towards staying up later and, and sleeping in since I've moved, you know, here and I get so much light, um, I, bright light exposure, like early in the morning, my clock completely reset where I'm now waking up at seven thirty eight in the morning. That was not me. Okay. Yeah, that was not me. And it was purely and, and my husband down in the same way. And he is even worse than me. And yeah. so now we're both, you know, no alarms, no trying, none of that. It just happened. It just happened. People make fun of like seasonal affect disorder, but I know that I'm super sensitive to that. And I, I really struggle in December and January and early February when there's, when there isn't as much light. Like, honestly, like I really like, I, I keep thinking like, I just want to go to Australia or South America for the winter. Like, I just want summer. I just need that light. Like it, it has a profound effect on my mood and overall disposition and my level of attention and my efficiency and my energy levels and my cognitive ability, like everything is impacted by it. Like it's December. Like I just want to hide, you know, like it really affects my, my mood. It absolutely. I mean, I, I feel the same way and we're both in California. So I know we're lucky. It's like, <laughs> I'm not complaining. Actually the, the sun's shining. I'm going to have to move in a second. Cause the sun, my cortisol levels, I can feel them going down because <laughs> the sun is shining right on my face. Yeah. I mean, uh, we're so lucky. It's the middle of January and it's like 70 degrees out right now. Yeah. No, but it, and it, and everything you just said it has been shown. I mean, seasonal affective order exists. It's been shown to be uh, ameliorated to some degree with bright light exposure. You know, you can buy those lights, to right. 10,000 lux lights that people can actually buy and just like expose themselves to it. You know, and like, to me, that sounds a little depressing, but it apparently works mm-hmm. you know and that's that's been published in multiple studies and i've actually spoken to people that live in like the uk and do that where it's like dark a lot during the winter mm-hmm. you know i could never do it yeah so so the bright light exposure i mentioned that because it really is the key for setting your sleep cycle and i am gonna move <laughs> the sun sorry about that no, go ahead keep going. um you know sleeping you know it's also very important for repairing damage, you know, and also, I mean, that's just, it, it's, it's critical to get enough sleep, but really 
the key to setting your whole circadian rhythm, your whole clock is it's bright light exposure. Mm-hmm. I, I am becoming increasingly convinced that the more I've, I've experienced it myself, You're the more I read. crazy, like, beach-dwelling Southern California <laughs> now, right? But it's really important. I mean, when I was reading that study about, you know, the, the cortisol reduction, like, and this is just, it, it, re- it, it reduced the cortisol reduction, uh, cortisol was reduced up to 25% in the what's called rising phase, which is your cortisol is highest. So cortisol is regulated by the clock, internal mm-hmm. clock. Um, and it's highest when you're sleeping and right when you're waking until about an hour after you wake, wake up peaks. And then throughout the day, cortisol levels just gradually decline. And that's called the you know decreasing phase. Um, that was also decreased by 15%, up to 15%. Mm. So full stop, cortisol was reduced. And if you think about it, it's kind of cool if your cortisol, you're still, you're st- you know, these people were still making cortisol during their rising phase. It just wasn't as robust. And, um, you know, so you think about your resting heart rate when you first wake up, that's when it's really going. Lots of heart attacks occur mm-hmm. in the early hours in the morning when cortisol is highest because it regulates your heart rate. Mm-hmm. So um, that's kind of the association I, my brain is making is like, oh, wow, that would be really cool to like not wake up, you know, with a, a quick, you know, fast heart rate. I've woken up in the middle of the night before my heart has been racing. And really? It scared me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's definitely happened to me on a few occasions. Um, where it's just racing like like I'm running from a freaking lion or something, you know, like like my body is responding that way. Right, it's that's, a stress that's re- it's cortisol. Bizarre. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. So. All right. So sunlight. Sunlight exposure, and and that's linked to sleep. So these are, these go hand in hand. They really do. Um, very important for uh, reducing inflammation. And then you mentioned meditation, and I think that is. Um, it's a really good way to negate a lot of the negative effects of stress, which when you do, when you're stressed off, when you're stressed out about something, you know, there's good stress and there's bad stress. Like, you know, if you're, if you're like me and you're someone who's constantly pushing yourself or like you, I mean, Mm. you're an endurance athlete. I mean, that's pretty, um, hardcore. Um, you're always, you know, you're thinking about your next project you have to do. I mean, you're running a top health podcast and you're constantly having to have new guests on and think about what you're going to discuss. I mean, that's, you know, that's a stress. It's a type mm-hmm. of stress. Um, Super stressful. <laughs> and <laughs> I, it becomes unhealthy. You know, to a certain degree, it's healthy. It's good to have that proactive kind of stress where you're motivated, where you're pushing yourself to learn new things and uh, go beyond your boundaries, go beyond what's comfortable. But when you start to ruminate about it, and rumination meaning you're just constantly thinking about it before it happens or after it happened, you just it just keep it's just on your mind all the time. That's when it begins to become unhealthy, mm-hmm. the rumination, and um, the the rumination you know that's been shown to lead to increased cortisol, increased corticotropin releasing hormone, which is another stress hormone, which pokes holes in the gut essentially activates the immune system leads to inflammation and all these little mechanisms that are happening but ultimately inflammation you know so that all occurs um and it has been shown that one of the best ways to negate rumination and bad stress is meditation mm-hmm. so now i think everyone met has their, their own type of meditation um i was recently i interviewed um someone in that I met in Amsterdam. He's a 
professor uh, emeritus where he um, you know, he used to do work on the immune system um, and decided you know after he was going to retire that he was just going to go into meditation like he's like super into meditation right. and he affects meditation on the brain on the body um, and he was you know telling me about some of the really profound effects that like over a hundred genes can change within minutes of meditating, starting meditation. And that it, that's crazy. It totally is crazy. A hundred different genes are changing. The, gene, the genes are actually changing or the expression of them the expression. is getting turned on and off. Exactly. Or? The expression. So some of them are becoming more active and the ones that are becoming more active are the anti-inflammatory genes. And this has been shown in blood cells from humans. Meditation can increase the expression of anti-inflammatory genes, at least in blood cells. Mm -hmm. Um, and it decreases the expression of um, pro-inflammatory genes. So it's like just the right profile that That's you want so to counter crazy. stress, right? So yeah. it makes sense uh -huh. on the molecular level why meditation does that. Do you have to be a that. good meditator in order to have that happen? I mean, you know, and this is the thing I was you talking... points for the trying? You know, I was talking to Pierre about this because I was like, you know, I, I've never been the kind of person that like... Because I'm just so go, go, go. I'm always, I'm, I'm really that's something that I personally mm -hmm. battle is that sort of, I guess people call it high strung where you're just constantly, you always have to be doing something um, just all the time. And um, so I, it's been hard for me to like sit down and just quiet. Um, Terrifying. Yeah. But I can do things like go out, paddle on my board and sit on my surfboard mm -hmm. and chill out looking at the horizon on a day when the waves aren't too big and that's pretty quiet out there. Uh, or when I'm, you know, sometimes I can do, um, like a, like a ballet exercise or yoga exercise where I'm, I'm really just enjoying that moment. I can do that. And, and I feel calm. But you can't sit still. I don't, it's not that I can't, <laughs> it's just that I can't. <laughs> yeah. I it's interesting. I mean, I, this is something that I've struggled with as well. And I go through phases. Like right now, I'm very committed to my meditation practice. And I've been really good lately. I'm doing it every morning and like a good student. And, um, and you know, I feel different. You know, it's definitely um, had, an, you know, a positive impact on me. Um, and I also like to make that argument. Like if I'm out on an easy trail run, that's like my mindfulness uh, exercise. Or if I just go for, you know, there are other things that are quote unquote meditative, but I think there is a qualitative difference between um, a meditative act and the formal act of meditation where you really are like, you know, just w whatever technique you're pursuing, but you are in that like seated position and just doing that one dedicated thing. Um, I think there's a, there is a distinction there. Yeah, and I would really like to begin, I say yeah, I like that, that's not a great way to start a sentence, but what I meant was I tend to agree with you based on the couple of times that I have put music on uh, and just sort of try to sit and and chill out, mm -hmm. where, and, and, and this has been shown, you know, there are neuroscientists that have been looking at buddhist monks that are meditating and, and the changes in their brain activity i mean that's all been shown i mean there right. are there are definitely changes immediately occurring and not only mm -hmm. in your blood cells but in your brain right so it's just so funny that the hardest thing to do is to do nothing it is really you funny know. you know it, it, at least for me it's one of the hardest things to do and i, I think you and i last time we, we were chatting you mentioned um headspace which i have now I have it on my phone, 
mm-hmm. and I'll, I, or, or my laptop. I have it somewhere. I downloaded it, but I haven't used it yet. Oh, come on. All right. Well, I'm going to call you next week. You need a little accountability. If you text partner. me and remind me, that would be All great. Right. I will. I can make a commitment to that. They should actually. Do they have yeah. that feature? They really should. I, I don't know. Maybe they do. I think like they do have a way to like you have buddies or whatever, so you know when someone else has done it. Or I think so. I don't know. But I'm happy to text you and hold your hand to the fire. Yeah, I should probably just go walk out to the beach and just sit there just, and listen you know, to the waves. Just like yeah, every morning yeah. when you're up so early now, yep. right, with the sun. Yep. It's a funny thing, though, when you were talking about um, kind of stress and being go, go, go and <clears throat> and the cortisol levels and all of that, because when you're somebody who is kind of acclimated to that kind of lifestyle, you don't realize that you're in this state of chronic stress all the time because it's your baseline. Yeah. You know, so it's not until you actually stop and weather the discomfort that comes with sitting still and, and, and not being used to that, that you start to get perspective on, on that. So. Yeah. And Dan always gives me a, he, 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 he points it out, you know, cause there's times when he's just, you know, just even wanting to cuddle and I'm like, I gotta do something. I gotta do something. I'm not being no. productive, right? No. I need to be more productive than cuddling right now. Don't you understand? That's so funny. It's, it's, I think it's a, there, there's, got to be some kind of genetic basis well here i can i can i can sell you on this line which is there's a weird there's a weird kind of like bizarre universal spiritual equation that takes place when you invest the time in the meditation you actually save time later like you become much more efficient and proficient in how you navigate through your day and i find myself not procrastinating or being able to kind of switch from one discipline to the next without kind of whatever dithering that I usually do. Like, it just seems a little bit more effortless. So I end up being, like, the time invested in that pays off, like, five to tenfold throughout the course of the day. So you, so you so actually not be check more Twitter productive. as much and all? I mean, because that oh, would yeah, be great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not as much. That, so how, yeah. how long is your morning meditation? 20 minutes. It's really not that but, long. But with Headspace, you can, sw- you can start off with five minutes or ten minutes. It's no big deal. Yeah. Go sit on the I'm beach. just going to go out on the beach. I yeah. Know. Think about all the, all the inflammation reduction. So you really you feel like be, you're... That will, that's your productivity assignment. I'm reducing my inflammation. But I, I need more than that because I feel like so many other things I'm doing are re- reducing my inflammation. I would like the, <laughs> uh, what you just mentioned, that you're, that you're more efficient. Like To me, that's like... Yeah. I mean, it's like anything else. You're not going to realize it day one. But like if you start to develop some consistency with it... I just find that I'm able to kind of go through the day and, and do that. And then I take care of that. And then I don't, and I don't get like tired and have to take a break and then waste time and then go on my phone. Like I'm, I actually am much more kind of like on point and focused. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's very interesting to me. And that's something I've wondered because there are studies showing that you can take a person that's never meditated before and subject them to some meditation program where mm-hmm. they're uh, meditating for like eight weeks and they're, their hippocampal part of their brain, which is involved in learning memory, it changes, becomes more active. The amygdala, which is the part of the brain that's the emotional center, fear, that sort of primal reptilian brain that's mm-hmm. like, uh, uh, that becomes less active. And a bunch of other parts of the brain change, change after eight weeks of, of meditating. And these are people that have yeah. never meditated before. Yeah, yeah. Well, just imagine being in a stressful situation where you have to make a decision or somebody you're in a conflict with somebody and the ability to just kind of like dispassionately 
um, respond in a way that's going to place you in the position that you want to be in as opposed to reacting and getting kind of like, you know, all your emotions out of whack and then saying something you wish you didn't say or sending the email that you regret, you know, all the, think of how much time gets wasted on that. Right. Oh, you're so right. So Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's, and I know, you know, I know meditation is one of those it's just, it, it should be my 2016 goal. It's like one of those, I even did a podcast on it where I like started talking about it to motivate myself. I'm like, right. I gotta do this, you know, right. uh, because I really, really want to incorporate it in my lifestyle. I mean, I know that it's going to, it's going to help me live longer. Right. So, well, get and perform it. better. There, apparently. there is no want. There is only do there or is, do right. not. Right. right. All right. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit and, and talk, uh, bring it back to telomeres because I think this is super fascinating. And I feel like, I kind of feel like um, this field is where microbiome research was maybe five or eight years ago, where there was a lot of interesting things happening in it, but it hadn't quite caught on in terms of mainstream kind of fascination and awareness. Like now it's all about the microbiome. You know what I mean? Like everyone's talking about it and, you know, just average people on the street are like, you know, how's your gut health? You know, it's like, this is not things we were talking about that many years ago. And I feel like research and kind of um, the things that are going on with telomerase, right, and anti-aging um, is, is going to be kind of the next thing. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I, I agree with you that telomerase, and in fact, not, since we were just talking about meditation, there was a fantastic study done in collaboration with Elizabeth Blackburn, who is the scientist who was involved in discovering the enzyme telomerase, which telomerase is able to take a telomere and add DNA nucleotides onto it so that it becomes longer. So it can, mm -hmm. it, it can actually build and replenish and replace and repair a damaged telomere. Right. All right. So let's just like put a pin in this for a second and just back up and let's just like kind of define what we're talking about. So Telomeres are these caps on the end of chromosomes, right? And and what is their relationship to aging? As they get as they as they shorten, that leads to what? Okay, so telomeres are tiny caps on the end of your chromosomes. And we have 46 chromosomes in every cell in our body. And those chromosomes contain all of our DNA. You know, so we've got you know, each gene we have is in a certain place in a certain position on a chromosome. And so that, you know, DNA is doing a very important thing because it's making a gene that's going to make a protein that's going to do all the function, whether that function is allowing your liver cells to, you know, make cholesterol or it's allowing your heart to, to pump blood to get to your brain or your neurons to function, whatever it is. Uh, it's important because it's keeping you alive. Mm -hmm. And so you want to make sure your DNA is protected. And so telomeres are, uh, a system that is conserved. Uh, many animals have telomeres to, on their, on their chrom chromosomes um, to to protect that DNA from getting damaged. So every time there's an inflammatory burst from an immune cell busting out some hydrogen peroxide because it's trying to kill a piece of bacteria, hydrogen peroxide can damage the DNA. Well, your telomere instead takes the hit and gets that hydrogen peroxide mm -hmm. so it protects the dna so it's like no i don't want that dna to get damaged that's you know that's bad it's, it's like a first line of defense it's like a shield line. On it's like your, a shield right. exactly and so your telomere will take that but when that telomere gets damaged um it becomes shorter 
And the thing with telomeres are, is that even if there was no damage occurring, every, okay, so we're, <laughs> we talked about all the chromosomes, 46 chromosomes inside of your cell, and the, and the chromosomes have the telomeres caps on them. Mm-hmm. Every time your cell divides, so you have a cell in your liver, and the liver cell's done its thing for a while, well, now it's time to make a new liver cell to replace that old liver cell. So you have to you have to replicate all the DNA and all the 46 of those chromosomes so that you can make a new cell that has all the same DNA. Mm -hmm. Well, your telomere DNA has to get replicated also. And there's a a defect in the telomere structure. So you kind of can think of it as the structure. The very end, the little tiny end of the telomere DNA, um, it, it has a little overhang that makes it so that the machinery that usually comes in and and copies it to make the exact replica can't get there it can't access it Mm -hmm. and so this little tiny tiny little end of telomere dna at the very tip of the telomere never gets replicated so the next cell generation that is now there the liver cell for example now has a telomere that's just a little bit shorter Mm -hmm. because it couldn't get copied Mm -hmm. and that goes on and on and on for it's like xerox against xerox yeah, Xerox exactly. Xerox until oh. it's illegible. Exactly. And so eventually... And at that point, it just can't replicate and it dies. At the point when it becomes so critically short, a couple of things happen. One thing that happens is that the, the cell will die. And in the case of... If this is a stem cell, that's bad because you're going to deplete your stem cell pools, which leads to aging. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a good thing if the cell was damaged and it could lead to cancer if, if, it, if it dies. Um, the other thing that happens is that the cell will, when the telomere becomes critically short, it kind of goes into a crisis and it doesn't know what to do. And so it just, uh, it, it calls, it, it doesn't die, but it's not really alive. And that's called senescence. Right. So when the cell is senescent, it's confused, it's really confused <laughs> and it's actually really bad uh-huh. <laughs> because a senescent cell, um, it, it's not alive, it's not dead, but what it is doing is secreting pro-inflammatory cytokines that damage nearby cells. Mm. So the more senescent cells you have accumulated in your bloodstream, in your liver, in your kidneys, in your muscle, you know, in your fill-in-the-blank organ, the more senescent cells you have, the more pro-inflammatory cytokines that are being dumped out, the more damaging of the nearby cells, the quicker it's going to accelerate those cells to become senescent. Because not only do your telomeres get shorter every year, every, you know, every time your cell divides based on that little, that problem I just mentioned, Mm -hmm. but what accelerates the damage is inflammation, oxidative stress, you know, those things accelerate it. So, right. Because once you have this problem and you have this senescent cell and it's making all the cells around it unhealthy and miserable, then that just, you're just accelerating that process. Exactly. You're accelerating that process. So that's kind of like telomere. Um, okay, let me. So that's part of telomere biology. So telomere, the other part. Telomere for elementary school. <laughs> yeah, students. telomere 101. <laughs> so that, that was fundamental, the fundamentals of telomeres. Now, the other part of this, this equation is well, what's this thing called telomerase that can rebuild the, the telomere that's short? Mm-hmm. Um, there is an enzyme, it's called telomerase. And uh, Elizabeth Blackburn at UCSF. Was in, she won the Nobel Prize in uh, Physiology and Medicine in 2009, I believe, for discovering it. And uh, it's able to, to take and 
add little DNA nucleotides to the end of the telomere so that it is it, it can lengthen it essentially, make a shorter telomere longer. Uh, the problem is, and this is the caveat, most of our cells in our body, with the exec- exception of our stem cells or our germ cells, so like um, sperm cells, ovaries, um, egg, egg cells, mm-hmm. uh, they do not, they have a gene for telomerase, but the gene is silenced. So it's like the gene is not there. Mm-hmm. And so your blood cells, you know, you're, you, you're basically not rebuilding your shortened telomeres in your liver or your, your, your blood cells uh, because telomerase is not active. Right. Uh, and there's a reason it's not active. The reason telomerase is not active is because if a cell is damaged, so if you've dumped, if you've just, you know, you treated yourself poorly, your body poorly, you haven't eaten the right things, and you have a lot of inflammation, a lot of reactive oxygen species chronically produced, um, you could damage your DNA mm-hmm. in, in a region that could lead to cancer. And if you have a damaged cell, one of the things it does is it activates telomerase because when you activate telomerase, it can allow a cell to become immortal. Mm. It can allow a cell to survive indefinitely. And cancer cells have one thing in their mind, and that is immortal until they kill the host. <laughs> right. Um, so telomerase. So, right. So, so that's problematic because you don't want proliferation of diseased cells. Exactly. And that's, um, that's one of the reasons why the f- anti-aging field um, and potential therapeutic strategies to activate telomerase, the enzyme, can be dangerous. Right. You could just literally turn on cancer and, and you know, kill somebody with it, basically. Potentially you could. So, so then the science or the research has to be... Uh, attempting to determine um, a means of activating telomerase in healthy cells, like being able to distinguish between cancerous or, or diseased cells versus healthy cells, right? Yeah, yeah, that would be, that would be one. Uh, and this is, this is really, like the, the, this whole notion of turning on the expression of genes and turning them off, that's epigenetics, right? It is, this that's is called epigenetics. That yes, that's called epigenetics. And um, with the telomerase, there are, you know, there are some compounds that are actually available even, you know, today. One of them is called TA65, which what it's, you know, made of for the most part, I think it's, they've got some sort of proprietary blend, but it's made of something called astragalus. It's astragalus root. Astragalus root. root. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it, what's been shown um, by a really pretty well-respected telomere researcher that I've known of for several years. Uh, Maria Belasco is her name. She's been doing a lot of research using TA65, both at the clinical level and also looking at animal models to look at mechanism. And she's published a couple of studies that I have read and been, I've been impressed with showing that TA65 can, it can increase telomere length um, in people, in their blood cells, over baseline. Uh, and this happened in about 40% of the people. And, and it was pretty sig- significant increase in telomere mm-hmm. length. Um, in, in animals, so mice were fed TS65, and there was a variety of doses they were fed. Um, and it was shown to reverse signs of aging in their, in their aged organs. Um, so it was kind of like delaying the aging process. And they also gave it to older mice that had already been aged, and it was reversing aging. And the question is, you know, well, 
can, can it lead to cancer? And that's, you know, that's something that's being investigated. In, right. In but the underlying premise behind all of this is that if you can solve this issue, if you can figure out how to continually be able to lengthen telomeres by via telomerase and do it with healthy cells, that you will then allow healthy cells to continue to divide. And in so doing, you are preventing the aging process from occurring. Yeah, I think that would be the ultimate goal. And that's, you know, researchers are trying to figure out a way to selectively be able to do that, Mm -hmm. uh, at least in terms of a, a therapeutic treatment for aging. But in terms of what people can do now, I think I think the real gold is in in the prevention of ex- the acceleration of telomere shortening, which is a big problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, there have been many many studies that have been done on identical twins that have shown twins that, for example, that uh, are in the highest quartile of um, vitamin D have telomeres that look five years biologically younger than the mm. twins in the lowest quartile of vitamin D, um, but but blood levels of vitamin D or exercise has also been shown. So twins that, um, that are the most active have telomeres that look 10 years younger hmm. than twins that are the most sedentary, hmm. you know? So these are things that, uh, you know, vitamin D decreases. Yeah, what, I was going to say, what is the relationship with, I mean, vitamin D is like a big thing with you, right? So let's, maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Well, vitamin D is, um, it gets converted into a steroid hormone in the body and that, that steroid hormone regulates about 5% of the human genome. So it turns on and turns off about 5% of genes. And I mean, you can imagine like not having estrogen or not having testosterone. Mm-hmm. There's going to be some pretty profound effects if you're deficient, mm-hmm. you know, when you're supposed to make it when you're younger. So um, it, it has a very important role in many, many, many biological processes from everything from in, immune function to inflammation to repairing damage to muscle growth to brain function i mean just it's just five percent of the genome it's a lot right and and what uh percentage of people are vitamin d deficient well according if you look at if you if you consider vitamin d deficiency uh at levels uh, below 20 nanograms per milliliter which is what the endocrine society defines it as um, and you just and you define vitamin D inadequacy as levels below 30 nanograms per milliliter, then 70% of the U.S. population wow. has inadequate levels. Wow! And um, there have been meta-analyses on studies from 1968 all the way up until 2000, uh, 2013. There's about 60 or so studies um, that were all looked at. These are studies that looked at vitamin D, blood levels of vitamin D, and all-cause mortality, so people Mm -hmm. that die from anything that's non-accidental, so cardiovascular-related diseases, cancer, neurodegenerative diseases, uh, respiratory uh, diseases, just frailty, things like that. Um, People with vitamin D blood levels between 40 and 60 nanograms per milliliter had the lowest all-cause mortality. And that's important because people think, well, you need vitamin D. And so they like, they have this tendency to go out and just mega dose. Right. You need that. You need, it's good for you. I need a lot of it. Well, more is better, Rhonda. It's not necessarily better. (laughs) Yeah. Especially when it comes to vitamins, you have to, you know, be, it's tricky. Um, Uh so too much vitamin D can, can potentially be dangerous. And, and me being out in the sun for an hour or two, 
for a run or something like that. Is that sufficient in Southern California or because I remember when we did when I did your podcast, you asked me, you know, if I supplemented and I said no. And, and I, I got the feeling that you were sort of like, really, like you were a little surprised, like you were coming from a place of like, I think you really should look into that. So yeah, I just was presuming because we live in a place where there's a lot of sunlight and I'm outdoors quite a bit that 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 sort of my body was taking care of it. And, and you know, I think that's a, that's a fair assumption to make. Um, however, there are there are many factors that affect the ability of your body mm-hmm. to make vitamin D and to convert it into the hormone. So I think that everyone should get a blood test done. It's just you can go to your doctor and get it done for mm-hmm. very, very, very cheap. And so if you're talking about someone living in Southern California, they have a, a higher uh, chance of, of making enough vitamin D because it is sunny uh, most of the year and because where we are latitude wise, you know, we're below um, the 30 degree parallel, it's called, which is what you, you have to be below that in order to have uh, UVB rays hit the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So in certain parts of the United States that are that are more northern that are above that 30 degree parallel during six months out of the year, five to six months out of the year. UVB rays can actually hit the atmosphere, and right. UVB is what has That's to what hit you your mean. skin gotcha. to convert something called 7-dehydrocholesterol into uh, vitamin D3. Uh-huh. Um, but in addition to that, you know, latitude, which is what you were thinking of, um, age regulates that. So, if you look at a 70-year-old male, the 70-year-old male makes about four times less vitamin D from the sun mm-hmm. than their 20-year-old mm-hmm. former former self. Um, melanin, which is the the dark pigment that protects people from the burning rays of the sun, also blocks UVB. Anything that blocks UVB, so sunscreen, right. melanin, so clothing. So if you're super tan or you're very dark complected, then you're not you're not able to actually get the vitamin D that you need. Yeah, you, well, you you have to stay out in the sun an incredibly Longer. long. Yeah, in some, in some in some cases, an incredible amount of time to mm-hmm. to actually get enough vitamin D. Um, which is not the case if you're living, you know, close to the equator or in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, right. where, where people that have dark, more melanin, the reason they have the melanin is because they're so close to the UVB rays that they have to protect from the burning. Right. So um, that's an adaptation. But the other thing um, is also body fat, um, which you don't have to worry about. But because vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin, it gets stored in fat. Mm. And the more fat that person has the less bioavailable vitamin d3 is to be released into the bloodstream Mm -hmm. where then gets acted activated to the hormone but in addition to all these things there's also some very common gene polymorphisms in the gene that converts vitamin d3 into the steroid hormone in fact i've already seen three people you know four people's dna out of you know 20 or 25 or so that uh, have have that have this polymorphism, which makes them less efficient at converting vitamin D three into huh. into twenty five hydroxy vitamin D three, which then gets converted into the hormone. So, a blood test usually measures twenty five hydroxy vitamin D, and that'll tell you like if you're supplementing with, you know, two thousand IU's of vitamin D a day, and you go get a blood test, and your your levels are like below twenty nanograms per milliliter something's up right that's interesting yeah <laughs> something's yeah, yeah. Up. Uh-huh. so and the only way you're going to know that is if you get a blood test so mm-hmm. i would encourage you 
to get your your vitamin D levels measured. Yeah, because I had a blood test maybe nine or ten months ago, and it was fine. I don't remember what it was. It was fine, but I'm due to have another one. So yeah, maybe I'll send you my my blood test results. You can tell me what I need to do. Forty to sixty <laughs> is is the sweet spot nanograms yeah. per mil. Um, what are the other on the while we're on the subject? I didn't mean to interrupt yeah. you if you had another thought on this, but just while we're on the subject of supplementation, I mean, I'm interested in your overall kind of you know, view and, and, and take on supplementation in general. And beyond that, what other things we should be looking at in terms of supplementation just for basic, you know, optimal health. Yeah, actually I get this question a lot and I've gotten the question so much that I've now started writing a solo podcast that I'm going to explain it all because I've gotten, I've gotten asked it so many times. Um, I think, in terms of supplementation, I mean, the word itself is supplement. I think the most important thing is to try to get all these vitamins and minerals and micronutrients, essential fatty acids, amino acids from food. Uh, and so the way I do that is by eating a very broad spectrum of vegetables and fruits and, um, again, the fiber stuff. But so I really try to get, you know, like I drink a large smoothie almost every single day that has mm-hmm. kale, chard, spinach, celery, carrots, I mean, tomatoes, uh, blueberries, apples. You have a YouTube video where I, you make the whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> and I've got a variety of variations. That's just one one of the variations I do. But it always starts with dark leafy. Dark leafy greens being like kind of the core base of everything. Exactly. Dark, dark leafy greens are the core of everything. And then I also eat a salad. I eat salads, you know, lunch and dinner and steamed vegetables. So I, I'm getting a lot of that. Uh, but in addition to that... I think there are a few really important supplements, and um, I take them. One is vitamin D. Mm-hmm. Uh, I take the vitamin D because I actually wear sunscreen when I'm out in the sun. I'm a little more concerned about skin aging. I think it's the female, the mm-hmm. being female, you know, females are, are a little more preoccupied with skin aging. But um, so I wear sunscreen, and um, so I don't really, I'm not, I'm blocking the UVB when right. I'm out there. So I have to take a vitamin D supplement. The other supplement I think is very important is I take, you know, the, the getting the omega-3 fatty acids, whether that's from your microalgae oil or your fish oil. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's very, very important. I've seen, you know, studies have shown that supplementing with the omega-3 fatty acids um, is also associated with lower all-cause mortality. It's been shown to, you know, increase muscle mass, decreases inflammation, brain function, you know, you know, it increases, you know, hippocampal volume, just all sorts of, I've just been convinced. Mm-hmm. It's one of my, it's one of the really important ones that I take, but the source is very important. You want to make sure that you're getting a good source. In the case of microalgae, um, it's a lot, it's probably uh, a lot safer in terms of not being exposed to so much oxidation because fish oil usually is um, molecularly distilled. And so um, it gets exposed to oxygen, and so you have to yeah. be Yeah, like, well, there's also, like, you have to be concerned about mercury with the fish oil, too, I think, right? You have to be careful. You have to be really careful that it's toxin-free. Yeah. There's, like, the it's garbage like truck garbage out there. Truck. It's, like, dumping, like, this <laughs> it's banging, like, this huge thing right outside the window. It's all right. Go ahead. I think he's actually um, <laughs> doing the recycle today. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about That's that. Right. Um, yeah, so mercury, typically, when you... Mon- part of the it's like i can feel it Uh, in my bones (laughs) um the mercury is uh, molecularly distilled typically from from most fish oil Mm -hmm. brands but yeah you do need to be careful of that and the oxidation is one of the really uh, one of the things that's critical with omega-3 fatty acids they're very very prone to oxidation so 
taking in rancid fat can actually do a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to get it from a good source. Nordic Naturals, I like. They have good microalgae oil. They have, they're just a really good company. They, they do all of their isolation under nitrogen conditions, so it's not exposed to oxygen at all, which is a right. good thing. Okay. So I really like Nordic Naturals. And I have no affiliation, by the way, with Nordic Naturals. I have no affiliation with VSL number three either. Mm-hmm. I, just, I like to talk about things that I believe in, things right. that I've researched. So. Uh, that's the other thing that I really, those are the two really main supplements. Then I also take um, an activated vitamin B complex. And what I mean by activated is that it has an active form of folate called methylfolate, uh, which is important for getting around a common, in fact, like almost 50% of the population has one form of another of a gene polymorphism in a gene that makes it more difficult for people to convert folate, which is found in dark green leafy mm-hmm. vegetables, into methylfolate, which is a very important precursor for epigenetics and changing gene expression, turning genes on, off, mm-hmm. and also very important for reducing homocysteine and blood vessels. Uh, so I take a B-complex with that. So I, I got a polymorphism that makes me a little right. bit and less. You, you, how are you able to determine that? Is that through like 23andMe and doing your mapping and figuring that out? Yeah, it was through 23andMe. Uh-huh. I did I did figure that out through using uh, the company called 23andMe, which right. um, I really, really like them. They're, they're, they're test for a variety, just thousands and thousands of very common gene polymorphisms. Mm-hmm. Do it from, you know, they isolate DNA from saliva and um, you can get, you can really learn a lot from from the uh, the results that you get back. They're doing health reports now, which are not really that informative. But another company that I really like called Prometheus does it. It gives you a health report. For well, like they $5. had to be like, didn't they had they had well they had that thing where they had to like because of regulatory reasons they had to stop what they were doing, and then they've been reintroduced, but they're <clears throat> they don't really. It seems, explain this, how there's certain things they can't say about like how to use this information, right? So you could still get the information, but they can't make predictions about what this means. So a couple of years ago, the FDA uh, put the lid on their ability to interpret any of the genetic data. Mm -hmm. So it used to be a few years ago, they would give you a health report. It was a health report that would explain what these gene polymorphisms that you have meant, which is kind of important because most people doing 23andMe aren't scientists. Right, like when you get this information back, what are you supposed to do with it? Right, exactly. No context or ability to understand what it means. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, 
politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Well, so the FDA decided that people were, um, they were taking the information a little too seriously, like it was just you know, 100%. Like some predeterminate. Yeah. Like if it says you have an increased risk of pop prostate cancer, like, oh my, I'm going to get prostate cancer, which mm-hmm. isn't necessarily the case because there's a very complex interaction between your lifestyle, your diet, you know, everything that you're doing in your lifestyle and your genes. So, and there is some component of chance as well, but lifestyle is very important. Right. So they used, they used to tell you kind of what it meant. FDA decided that people were taking extreme measures based on that information they were getting and through all sorts of bureaucratic stuff that I don't quite understand, um, they shut them, shut that part of them down. So 23andMe for a, for a few year, a couple of years after that, still tested for those polymorphisms, still give gives people the raw data. Just people don't know what to do with it. It's right. like, what does this mean? There's an A here instead of a G. Okay, what does that mean? Right. Um, but because other companies that don't actually directly do the genetic testing, but can tell you what that means, tell you what the data means based off of, you know, what's in the scientific literature, FDA couldn't shut those companies down because they're not the ones doing the DNA testing. They're just saying, oh, that's amazing. So it's not, it's not the analysis itself that's illegal. It's just the fact that it's the same entity doing it. The same entity doing the the DNA testing Mm -hmm. and giving the health reports. Right. So... The 23andMe kind of, um, you know, they've been at negotiating with uh, FDA for a couple of years and um, found a way to now have some health reports that are that are able to tell you. I think there's about 36 or so they do, and I and I, I recently used used their health report service, and I, I it really wasn't that informative to me. Um, but I'm looking for genes that I find think are interesting, like genes that regulate the way my body metabolizes fat, you mm-hmm. know, genes that regulate the way my body metabolizes folate or, you know, things that I think there are some, there's a direct actionable thing that a person can do to like bypass a defect they may have right. or to make the outcome better. And is this the thing that you're currently working on right now? Is yeah. You're writing on to help people interpret all of this information. I am. Yeah. So, um, like I said, I, I do like another company called Prometheus, which, um, is $5 and it's like a tool that will take your 23 andme data and um, match it to about 55,000 published um, polymorphisms in the literature and kind of spits out this report that's like very overwhelming. 
but it does a pretty good job. Just like you can scroll down the list and it'll say, oh, increased risk for prostate cancer or mm-hmm. uh, increased obesity risk or, you know, things like that. So I really like them. Um, but in addition to Prometheus, I've been working um, on a genetic tool and that is going to first the beta version that's I'm going to ho- I'm trying to release this month um, is going to uh, it, it, it interprets what some of these genes that I've sort of handpicked as the first sort of report that I find um, very interesting that have a very what I think um, important effect on someone's um, the way their lifestyle will it can direct the kind of lifestyle they have mm-hmm. ba- based on knowing this information. Mm-hmm. For example, there's a gene polymorphism that um, when you cook meat, when meat, doesn't matter if it's fish or chicken or red meat, when it's cooked at a high temperature, so frying or grilling, when you grill, something is produced called aromatic, um, aromatic uh, hydrocarbons that are carcinogenic. And these things get detoxified in our body, so our body inactivates them by, sorry, aromatic heterocyclic amines, hydrocarbons or something else, they're heterocyclic um, amines, they become carcinogenic, but our body, using a certain gene, can deactivate them to not be carcinogenic. Well, there are a lot of people out there that that gene is very, very, very slow. Hmm. And so if they have that gene that's the slow version, and I've seen quite a few people that have it, that means that they probably should avoid frying their meat, mm-hmm. grilling all the time, and probably should bake it, or, or just as Rich says, or naughty, naughty meat. meat. Um, but you get the point. To get the- <laughs> so the point is, is that I, I've been I've been designing this tool that sort of you know, and there's lots of examples like this where it's dietary related, and then, and the way around it. I have it. to like move again. The sun is like chasing right you. I know, it's like chasing me. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. So there's a way around it, and and that tool is going to be free. Um, uh-huh. it, and I, I'm just going to basically nag people to to help crowdfund. That's cool. So is it, it's going to be like a technology based tool though. It's not like a written document. It's going to be, um, it's going to be a technology based web tool. So you'll Uh go to, to my website, foundmyfitness.com and you'll um, enter in your name and then you'll like create a password and then you'll be able to export your 23 andme data after signing all the disclaimers right <laughs> like, like this is not medical advice this is Rhonda's opinion and blah blah uh-huh. blah blah you'll sign all that and then your 23andme data so we've we've set up an api with 23andme where we can now take their data oh wow and then it'll, it'll you know i've been working with some um, very skilled programmers one of them is my husband and then one's a good friend um that have been helping me uh basically d- design this tool that's really and they've cool. been doing all the programming stuff and i've been doing all the science stuff right 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 wow that's cool. so it's been a lot of work and the first report that i'm going to put out is is the beta version and i'm really hoping to solicit feedback um uh-huh. and it will be probably around 30 to 40 genes that i've chosen right. first to do right, right, right. um just to see see how it works but i'm really excited about it and like i said it's free um so I'm I'm a big proponent of the of the 23 and Me. Unfortunately, they just raised their price by 100%. So it was mm-hmm. $99, and once they came out with this new health report, uh, which is about 36 different genes, they tell you, um, they raised the price to $199. Wow! <laughs> but I still think it's very worth it. Yeah, extremely super worth interesting. It. I've been like admit like sort of I'm, I'm sort of embarrassed to admit but like kind of too scared to do it like i'm worried like i don't know that i want to know even though i know what you were saying like it's these are just sort of baseline predispositions that are influenced by so many other things and 
knowledge is power and knowing these things can allow you to make better decisions to avoid these, you know, outcomes, right? <clears throat> but there's still something inside of me that's like preventing me from doing it. I think a lot, I think that's that's very uh human uh, very yeah. human feeling. I mean my father-in-law is the same way. Um, we, I'm not like a Luddite, you know, it's like, I don't, I know, I'm not somebody who's afraid to go to the doctor or anything like, you know what I mean? Like I want, I kind of want to know. And yet I could, I know I feel this tug like, yeah, but do you really want to know that much? You know? Yeah. And genes are kind of scary, but I've known so many people that have learned so much that, I mean, that they have from knowing their 23andMe data have made lifestyle changes that mm-hmm. have dropped their cholesterol hundred points, their LDL cholesterol that have, mm-hmm. you know, dropped their blood pressure from like, like really hyper hypertensive to like finally a normal range um just by learning some some gene polymorphisms that they had vitamin d was another one i had a friend that was just had this polymorphism where they didn't convert vitamin d3 even though they were supplementing with 4000 ius a day and they couldn't get their levels up uh, and it wasn't until i was able to see their genes and and go this is the cause of it you know, and they had to take a much, much higher dose than what a normal person would take. And finally, were able to get their vitamin D levels up mm-hmm. and they started to lose weight and just all these good things started to happen. Right. So, but I understand the fear. I understand the fear. Well, if you start meditating, then I'll order my kit from 23andMe. Seriously? Yeah. We so have a deal. That's the deal we're yeah. going to make. I all will right. do it. All right, cool. I mean, it's so easy for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's easy for me, too. I just click a couple buttons on the computer, right? Yeah, I would love to get your feedback, too, on the tool. Yeah, for yeah, sure. That'd be yeah, really cool. cool. Well, there's one more thing I want to talk about before I'm going to let you get back to your life. Um, and it's a broad subject, but maybe we can kind of crystallize it a little bit. And it's, the, it's this dividing line between nutrition and lifestyle oriented around performance, athletic performance versus overall long-term wellness and longevity. And I feel like these two things are somewhat at odds. Like it's a Venn diagram where there are certainly overlapping aspects of them. Um, but they're not exactly always compatible. And as I get older, I'm 49 now, and I'm somebody who's very interested in athletic performance and I want to continue to be able to perform at the highest level that I can but not at the cost of my ultimate long-term wellness and longevity. And um, I feel like in the kind of health space online, uh, whether it's podcasts or YouTube or whatever, there's so much emphasis on performance nutrition. You know, like how can I get that extra, you know, whether it's like, you know, building muscles faster, stronger, recovering faster, and all these sorts of things. And I feel like for the most part, the audience for these for, for all of this are people that are really weekend warriors. Like it's, it's not the elite Olympic athletes that are sort of the audience for all of this content that's out there. It's people that really should be, in my opinion, my subjective opinion, should be thinking more about kind of long-term optimal wellness than trying to get that 1% performance enhancing aspect that, you know, maybe some kind of nutritional protocol will afford them. I didn't say that very articulately, but you get where I'm coming from. No, you you're incredibly articulate, and I I think I you know I agree with you that you know there is often a trade off with performance and longevity, whether it's athletic performance or cognitive performance. I mean, there's there are you know tons of people out there taking nootropics, and and they probably are experiencing some you know some benefits, uh, mental and performance you know, benefits, but I'm not, I'm not sure that it doesn't come at a trade-off. 
um, or or athletic performance where where you know people people will go to extremes where they'll you know even as to uh, take you know, hormones to to get that mm-hmm. that performance boost to get that muscle mass yeah or know, maybe increase. something else too maybe something else yeah yeah um, and and in those cases I think it's pretty clear to me that there is a trade off. Uh, when when you're when you're doing something as extreme as, as taking like super physiological levels of of different hormones, steroids, right? But beyond like kind of performance enhancing drugs and that whole world, just like daily kind of uh, you know nutritional habits, I suppose maybe we could just focus on that. Yeah, you know it's kind of funny now that you bring that up because in my mind I've recently been a little I've been focusing on the overlap between performance and in longevity. Uh, and finding some some supplements, finding some nutritional components that are increasing muscle mass, uh, decreasing inflammation, decreasing muscle atrophy. All these things are also associated with living longer. So that's obviously an overlap. But mm. I've also seen, and I'm not really familiar with, you know, I've seen out there in the in the blogosphere, <laughs> people talking about gains and like eating pop tarts and like like just eating like crap and then like just working out like and mm-hmm. you know it's it's anabolic or you know because of like the sugar and the insulin and you know it's going it's and I'm like I just don't think on any level that eating pop tarts is good for you like I don't care Does how much anybody? you're working out yes they do I'd there like are to people see this blog <laughs> in fact there was some like cyclist that was like cycling around the United States, and one of my relatives shared it. Oh, it was this guy who's eating McDonald's, like, or he's eating all his food was fast food. Yeah, like fast that. food yeah, and like yeah, pop tarts yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah. And so, anyways, I'm just, you know, that that sort of stuff is really it irritates me. Where I'm well, like, there's still this idea that you can train your way out of a poor diet, and it's it's easier to believe that when you're 19, you know, and you're you can just eat whatever you want, and you go work out, and you feel great, and you get stronger, and you don't put on any weight. As you get older, you realize that that's a straw man <laughs> argument. Um, that I think that you have to start paying attention to those sorts of things. But but I think there's a you know there's certainly um, a way of eating that's oriented around short-term performance goals um, that is at odds with you know kind of how you want to live your life in general. Yeah, I I do think that um, it, along the same lines of you know people eating these refined carbs, which I find just extremely it's just confusing how anyone could think that's good for you. Um, I think a lot of people are really focused on taking, taking a lot of protein Mm -hmm. and you know, protein, we don't really need that much protein. I mean, obviously if you're, if you're really wanting to gain muscle mass, um, and you, you need to take in more protein because you won't, you won't gain a lot of muscle Mm -hmm. mass if you're not getting, you know, a certain amount of protein. Uh, but, but the idea that the average human being who, you know, goes goes to the gym for 45 minutes three days a week and, you know, tosses a football on the weekend or something like that needs to be drinking protein drinks all the all the time and, yeah. and eating massive amounts of, you know, steak all the time is insane. It is insane. And I and I and I think if you look at some of those guys, they they don't look like they're really in, in the best of shape, in, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Um, you know, I. I so where does this like protein obsession come from? Do you think? Probably because they want to they want to gain more muscle, 
you know, they want to be that, that muscle man, mm-hmm. you know, that, that like muscle man looking kind of person. Um, but you know, protein, protein intake, especially in the context of someone that's also eating refined carbohydrates and not getting their greens, not getting their fiber. So if you have someone that's just sort of eating a bunch of meat and, you know, bread and crackers and their cake, you mm-hmm. know, um, can be a really, really dangerous thing mm-hmm. because, because of what we were talking about early in the podcast, because of the inflammation, the, the oxidative stress that leads to the damage of the DNA, the damage of a cell. Um, when you, when you have that in the context of a high protein diet, what happens is protein activates this whole pathway in the cell, um, the IGF-1 pathway, that allows a damaged cell to override the, the mechanisms in the body that sense the cell is damaged and mm-hmm. go, oh, this cell is damaged. If I don't kill it, it could potentially become cancer. Mm-hmm. And when there's a lot of IGF-1 around, insulin-like growth factor. That's like kerosene. It's like kerosene. Cells, it's right. a, it, 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 it says, oh, no, you don't want to die. Grow, grow, grow. And so it overrides that whole protective mechanism. Mm-hmm. And that protective mechanism is there for a reason. Mm-hmm. It's a very important mechanism to get rid of a, a, a cell that, that, has, um, that has basically escaped the immune system. There, you know, our body has, has a lot of different ways to make sure we don't get cancer. One of them is the immune system, which we talked about. And the other one is this, this pathway, the, a genetic pathway, many different genetic pathways that get activated that will, um, as soon as a, a cell gets damaged, the cell senses it, turns on the expression of one or many different genes that then kill it. Um, program cell death, it's mm-hmm. called apoptosis. So IGF-1, which is activated by protein intake, uh, specifically from essential amino acids um, like leucine, um, it activates IGF-1 very robustly. And so protein intake in the context of someone that has a lot of inflammation, that has a lot of damaged cells, the average American that's just going out and getting their burger and fries and, you know, they're not, they're not the kind of person that's really um, health or fitness oriented or obsessed. It can be very, very dangerous. And that's, that's been shown, it's been shown mechanistically in animal studies. It's been shown in um, epidemiological studies uh, that protein intake, you know, is, is correlated with, you know, cancer incidents. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, that's also, like I said, it's in the context of, you know, people that are unhealthy and have damaged cells around. Right. And, and when you're taking in excessive amounts of protein, I mean, you're not even metabolizing all of that into your muscle, right? Like what happens to all of that protein? Like how do you metabolize it? Yeah. Where the, does it go? The branch chain amino acids get taken up into your muscle cells to build, to build muscle. Uh, but the protein gets broken down into amino acids and the amino acids um, are, are used to make new proteins inside all your different cells. And so it serves a very important role because just like I mentioned um, when we were talking about telomeres, every time your cell replicates, it has to replicate all the DNA. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? All that DNA is, is the template to make, eventually to make proteins and proteins are made of amino acids. And so your cell needs building blocks to make those proteins out of the genes. So right. you need amino acids. You need them to do everything. It's, but And we should just be calling them amino acids, right? Like, why do we even use the word? Pro- like, I had um, 
Ray Cronice on the uh-huh. podcast. Yeah, he's like, yeah. well, I don't forget. I don't want to talk about protein. Never use that word. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I actually interviewed him too, and uh-huh. he's a he's a friend of mine. Um, but yeah, he's he wants to like rethink that whole don't use carbohydrates or proteins right or, just eradicate these these words that we've applied to macronutrients because it just gets people caught up in these you know like sort of mental funnels that screw us up yeah well the thing with the um the amino acids you know the, like people and, and the thing that is also very confusing when we say protein is that protein when someone hears the word protein they think of meat they think of eating meat right um but Proteins, when I say proteins um, inside the cells, I'm, I'm talking about something that was made into a protein from a gene in your body. So amino acids were assembled together to make your you know, protein to do a certain function inside of your cell. Right. So, so the dietary protein that people are eating, there are the amino acids that people are taking in and then get used to make proteins inside of your cells. But the thing is, is that um, there's no other cell that loves proteins or amino acids more than a cancer cell because cancer cells are growing at a much faster rate than any other cell in the body. So they need amino acids. Mm. They need those building blocks to make more cancer cells. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's another thing that, that uh, amino acids or a high dietary protein intake can, um, can do is fuel the growth of cancer cells, not only through IGF-1 and, and overriding those cell death protective mechanisms, and, and saying grow, 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 but it also gives them the building blocks to make new cancer cells, right. to make more of them. Um, and, and so that's another very um, important thing to keep in mind. However, I will mention that, you know, as we're aging, as we get older, you know, in, starting at about middle age, um, humans begin to lose between 0.5 and 1% of muscle mass each year. And it becomes more and more difficult to keep muscle mass, mm-hmm. you know. And so at that point, and, and this has been shown in, in a very well-done study by uh, Walter Longo at UCLA, who showed that um, the dietary protein intake in people that were, I think it was younger than 65 years, once it got to 60, no, 55 years of age, once they got to 55 years of age, then protein intake, um, low protein intake was actually correlated with a higher all-cause mortality. Not mm-hmm. cancer, but, but all-cause mortality. Mm-hmm. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that as you do get older, muscle mass becomes very, very important because the stronger you are, the more muscle mass that you mm-hmm. have, the less likely you're going to fall and break a hip. And right. that, that stuff can take you out. You right, fall right, and break right. a hip and, and you get a staph infection and oh, die. You're, you know, yeah, you're I mean, done. Yeah. Yeah. So frailty is, is, is another uh, major you know, cause of aging or major concern for, for an aging person. So I do think there is a balance between ma- maintaining your muscle mass and, and focusing more on protein intake as you become 60, right. 65 years old. And you've escaped. I mean, once, you, once you're reaching 70, 70 to 80, once you hit 80, you're likely not going to get cancer. I mean, maybe prostate, most men, prostate cancer mm-hmm. is a very slow growing cancer. So that, I guess that's always a possibility. But generally speaking, if you make it to 80, you're, you're likely you're not going to be past that part. Yeah. When you look around the internet, I mean, certainly we're in a time where people are more interested in health and fitness and nutrition than they ever have been. Uh, and if you poke around the internet, the blogosphere, YouTube, podcast, whatever, there's no shortage of, you know, information, quote unquote information. But as somebody who 
you know, really is immersed in the scientific literature and has, you know, conducted the research and really understands the mechanisms that are at play here and the complexities, when you kind of poke around and see what people are saying, I mean, how does that make you feel? Do you get just like, cause it's got to make you crazy, right? When you see stuff that isn't correct. Oh, it, it frustrates you, the hell out of me. Do you like, <laughs> I mean, do you have to avoid going online or how do you approach all of that? Oh, I have to calm myself down and focus on the, the big picture and the things that I think are more important because I could spend my entire life just going on and just talking about all the stuff that I read that is bullshit and BS. Mm. Sorry. What do you think is the biggest kind of misconception that's being propagated right now? Like of the, you know, maybe like the top things that people are walking around believing that you think are, are, you know, you would like to disabuse people of. Um, I think that probably, (laughs) so this is a really, um, like you said, you know, there's lots of complications and nuances, you know, that, that go along with any, thing related to health, you know, anything that is, has to do with human physiology in the body is, is extremely complicated. And I think something that's very, very popular right now is this ketogenic diet and, you know, high fat diet, mm-hmm. which, um, I just, I think has been taken and blown sort of out of proportion. And I don't think people really understand They they just think it's sort of like this thing that's great for everything. And it's just like, cure all prevent right, all. it's going to cure disease you're going to lose weight and like all this stuff yeah and there's actually a lot of things to consider uh the types of fats you're getting you know the types of proteins you're getting along with the fat the micronutrients you're getting all sorts of complexities i mean there are you know for example there's polyunsaturated monounsaturated saturated fat and you know everyone's on this sort of saturated fat is good suddenly saturated fat is your best friend even none of the studies say that by the way yeah i i think it's a response i think that a response to um to some of the the mis the 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 bad data that was put out there and also um the, the the fact that you know cholesterol the complexities of cholesterol and what cholesterol is doing in the body and types of cholesterol just there's been so many things that have come out to then stated one thing and then, Oh, we find out, no, it's sort of this other thing. And, but really when we look at it in detail, what was out there the first time was true. It just was, it was generalized. And so, you know, it's a lot more complex than we had first you know realized. And, mm-hmm. and that's kind of how things get thrown out of proportion and all these like misconceptions occur and all that stuff just from the overgeneralization. Yeah. Well now, and now more than ever when there's pressure for page views and so headlines have to be clickbaity and, you know, so the, the sort of, um, you know, opportunity for propagating misinformation becomes more tempting and proliferate. It does. It does. Um, and you know, I've seen it many, many times and back, you know, but back to the, the, the fat part, it's as I've been digging more into the gene polymorphisms and genetics and, uh, you know, looking at all these different genes that are regulating the way we metabolize fat, the way we transport it, the way we process it, the way we use it, utilize it, catabolize it, et cetera, et cetera. I'm finding how incredibly polymorphic humans are, meaning we have 
you and I are different. You know, we're different than the guy out there crossing the street. We all have different variations of these genes mm-hmm. that have to do with the way we metabolize and utilize and catabolize and transport fat in our bodies. And many, many people actually um, can take in saturated fat and it cause insulin resistance based on a, a certain right. gene polymorphism they have. Uh, if they don't have enough polyunsaturated fat, but they have too much saturated fat, it all depends on the ratio because the polyunsaturated fat is important for activating the certain gene that, you know, that takes the fat up into adipocytes or that allows fat to be used by, you know, by your liver cells. It's complicated. It's complicated. Right. And so, and so when I just see this diet where it's like, Oh, just eat your butter every day. I'm like, well, you know, fat's good, but you know, some people, it may be that you need to be eating more fat from nuts and from fish or from avocados, from plants, olive oil, you know, things that have, you know, polyunsaturated fat, monounsaturated fat versus saturated. It's very, very complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I, when I see that just eating, eat your butter, eat your butter, eat your butter, I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that's healthy yeah. for everyone. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how that kind of uh, protocol plays out over the next five years and, and people that are really on board with it to see where they're at and what they're doing a couple of years from now. Yeah, I, you know, I'm going to, I plan on doing some videos and talking about it a little more in depth. I am personally extremely interested and I'm doing some comprehensive reading on it because I want to know for myself, uh, I don't really have, you know, a horse in this race. I don't really care. I, I just want to know what's the, the healthiest you know, way I can live and what right. I should be eating. Um, and so, you know, I, and I do think there are get into like knockdown drag out arguments on YouTube with people. No, not, I'm not people really get so crazy emotional. They do. They're stuff. emotionally attached to it. And you know, it, it, that's human nature. I mean, especially when you're, you're putting something out there and it's like your whole health, mm-hmm. you know, pyramids relies on that fact that it's good. And, and there are benefits for ketosis and, you know, ketosis is when you're burning fat and you're making these ketone bodies like beta hydroxybutyrate that can have a lot of very positive benefits in the brain and the body, lots of good things going on. And that is, and that's irrefutable. And I, and I absolutely believe that, but, but it's, it's like a crisis state for the body though, right? This is, this is, is this something that you could, you know, forge as a long-term lifestyle? Like what are the implications of being in that state you know, all of the time or a large percentage of the time. We don't really know. We, we don't really know, especially in humans, what, what those long-term, you know, effects are or would be, um, you know, but we, we do know that the signaling molecules themselves, the ketone bodies like beta-hydroxybutyrate have been shown to change the expression of genes in a good way. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they have been shown to, uh, to improve, you know, cognitive function in the brain they're a very easily utilizable source of energy. Uh, so that's also good because for a lot of different reasons. And, you know, I don't want to get into that's a whole other podcast. But, you know, I think there are ways to, to make ketone bodies um, like, you know, from, from eating, you know, certain types of medium chain triglycerides that could be therapeutic potentially uh, without getting eating all the butter and, mm-hmm. you know, having all the fat and micronutrient deficiencies and things like that. Um, but I'm not sure. I'm really right. not sure. And I, and it's something that I'm looking into and I want to, I want to understand. And I, and I think it's, I think that people that think they understand it, um, 
most most people that really don't understand it like me <laughs> i mean i don't i'm learning about it and i want to understand but it's so incredibly complicated and the more i learn the more i realize it's even more complicated than i thought mm-hmm. but um, it's so refreshing to hear you say that because there's so many people on the internet who claim to have it all wired and know exactly what it is and what it isn't and i get suspicious and they, and they yeah. are they don't have nearly the level of you know uh, of education or expertise that you do yeah understanding but so yeah that's that's probably one mm-hmm. of the one of the things and there's there's quite a few out there there's right. quite a few out there when are you going to write a book i'm that's something that i'd like to do um i'm sort of as i'm as i make videos and as i you know put information i, I have a newsletter where i write articles and stuff um i am compiling my thoughts for a book I'm trying to think of what exactly i want the book to be on um and so that is something that I, I, am, I haven't started yet. I haven't made an outline, but I'm thinking of doing that, you right. know, you soon. Should, you should definitely write a book. I really want to. Yeah, cool. yeah I really want to. I want to, but I want to write a good book and, and I want to do all the research and I just, I want to, you know, I want to, I want people to understand the message too. <laughs> yeah. So it's all. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Good. Well, I think that's a good place to close it down for today but i'd love to have a round two with you at some point because there's so many other things like i have my notes we even stuff we told we talked about that we were going to talk about we didn't even get to but that's podcasting right so much to talk about yeah, anyway super fun and uh really informative and just incredibly uh illuminating so thank you so much for your time thanks I rich it. i really like talking to you so if you want to check out Rhonda, she's pretty easy to find on the internet. Definitely check out her podcast, Found My Fitness, which you can find on iTunes or her website, foundmyfitness.com. And that's also your Found My Fitness on Twitter and Facebook and all those, all that yep, stuff, right? all social media, Facebook, yeah, very cool. Twitter, Instagram. And uh, I'll put um, a bunch of links in the show notes to this episode that relate to all kinds of stuff that we talked about today. Cool. Awesome. All Thanks, right. Rich. Really cool. enjoy the, the Thank talk. you so much. Peace. Plants. All right, you guys, I hope you enjoyed that. Please make a point of visiting the show notes for this episode at richroll.com. This week, they are absolutely bursting at the seams with incredible information to take your learning and your edification from Rhonda to the next level. So you can find that all at richroll.com episode 209. It's easy to find. While you're at it, make a point of subscribing to my newsletter. I send out weekly podcast updates, video updates, my musings, never any spam, just good stuff. Uh, If you want access to the entire RRP catalog beyond the most recent 50 episodes that you can find on iTunes, I've got an app for that and it's free. Just search Ritual in the app store. It'll pop right up, free download. You can have the entire catalog in the palm of your hands. I know there are some bugs in the current iteration of the app. I actually have a couple guys working on it right now. We're going to be releasing, releasing, I can talk, releasing a new version of that soon. Uh, So stick with it, and uh, all of those issues will soon be solved. Uh, In case you missed uh, last week's episode, I talked a lot about my commitment in 2016 to video. I'm going to be posting a new video every week on my YouTube channel. So please uh, subscribe there. It's youtube.com forward slash rich roll. I'm also posting daily stories on Snapchat, uh, a lot about my morning routines, nutrition, daily habits, random musings behind the scenes of the podcast. So if you're into that kind of thing, you can find me every single day on Snapchat. 
Uh, my username there is I am Rich Roll. I A M Rich Roll. For all your plant power and RRP swag and merch, visit richroll.com. I got tons of cool products there to take your health and your vitality and your plant powered experience to the next level. Uh, keep sending in your questions for future QA podcasts to info at richroll.com. Uh, and if you're into online courses, I got two of those at mindbodygreen.com, The Art of Living with Purpose, which is all about setting intentions and setting goals and achieving them, and also The Ultimate Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition. Both are multiple hours of streaming video content. It's really great. They're very affordably priced. Soon to be a third course. Julie and I are getting ready to shoot a course on relationships, and that will soon be up at, uh, at mindbodygreen.com as well, probably some point this spring. In any event, thanks for all the love, you guys. I appreciate you listening, for telling your friends, for sharing it on social media, for always using the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. I love you guys. See you next week. Peace. Plants. Yeah.